1: Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
2: Astonishing Legends is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Lightstream, Keeps, Remrise, Quip, our contributors at patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible.
3: Last week, we introduced you to the sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey, a man who could seemingly predict the future and cure illnesses by going into a hypnotic sleep-like state while being guided by someone in the room. Numerous skeptics visited Mr. Casey in person in an attempt to determine what sort of trickery he was making use of. Still... They were unable to draw any conclusions other than that they couldn't figure out how he was doing, what he was doing. They were also flummoxed by the fact that treatments he recommended seemed effective at helping or curing many people, even though they were unknown to modern medical science at the time. Mr. Casey little understood his apparent gift himself. He proactively avoided any fame or fortune that might have accompanied it. Still, he also felt a responsibility to continue doing it for as long as people might need his help. There are many questions about Edgar Casey's legacy, which is still going strong today. Tonight, we will explore the remainder of his life and the fascinating prophecies he made before he shuffled off his mortal coil.
4: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess.
3: Birth in the physical is death in the spiritual. Death in the physical is the birth in the spiritual. Edgar Casey.
4: Join us tonight for part two of our series on The Sleeping Prophet, Edgar Casey.
3: We're back. That we are.
4: Welcome back, folks. Uh, We had something happen back in December that we thought was pretty interesting regarding that episode on the ghosts of Flight 401. And we wanted to mention it, but we got so busy, we didn't get a chance to. And now that it's uh, 2020, we thought we'd touch on this because it was (laughs) pretty fascinating. We got an email from a listener, and I wanted to read this email. It it was after, I guess, she had heard Flight 401. Hmm. Hey, guys. Long-time listener from America, but currently living in Edinburgh, UK. I used to walk through Greyfriars every day to get to class and it really is that awesome. I'm working in a shop and I get to talk to all kinds of interesting people, especially flight crews. I love asking them how they feel when people clap after the plane lands. Usually I receive an eye roll in response. (laughs) Tonight, I had a flight crew from a family with a private jet, ooh, fancy, and the woman in the group mentioned she used to fly commercial for U.S. Airways, and I made a joke along the lines of, good you didn't say Delta, or I would have had some opinions. She responded by saying she used to work for Eastern as well. Well, I immediately said, I recently heard about Eastern and a haunted plane. Turns out, she was a flight attendant for years on 401 and said it was absolutely haunted by the deceased engineer. Just an aside here real quick, I think she was probably talking about Aircraft 318, which was the plane that got the bulk of the parts that were supposedly recovered from Flight 401, because Flight 401 had already gone down. So obviously, she would not have been a flight attendant on that plane.
3: No, I think that's, uh, yeah, in the 300s there, that's the number in the Eastern Airlines roster plane, right. planes.
4: And that's where those yeah. parts went. Uh, that's where that oven yeah. supposedly went, right? So, uh, but just coming back to it. She said it was common knowledge and that strange things always happened on board, like every seat alert light being called at once. She made sure never to look in the oven when she was on the plane because she heard from coworkers that that was the place the engineer was frequently seen. She said all of the parts that were salvaged from the wreck were removed because of the incidents. So I thought this was pretty amazing. Mm. That email came in from Natalie. Natalie, thank you so much for sending that in a bit of a synchronistic... Thing going on there with the fact that you managed to hear that story right then, but also something happened to you over the holidays
3: in person relating to Flight 401, right? (laughs) Well, it didn't happen to me personally, but I was told about it by someone we had met over the holidays. The story goes here that my dad's cousin and his wife had generously treated us to a Christmas play, a musical a live stage play, live stage show, and we were attending this musical. And I consider them my aunt and uncle, even though, yeah, they're my technically my dad's cousins. So my aunt had just told me she had just listened to the episode on Flight 401 and really liked it, thought it was very good. And we were discussing the stranger aspects of that case. And this woman that was sitting in front of us, in the seats in front of us with her daughter, turned around and said, Excuse me, are you talking about Eastern Flight 401? I'm like, yeah, we are actually. Do you, do you know about that? And she said, well, yeah, I do because back in the day, I was a flight attendant for a private charter airline. And the pilot and I were stuck at JFK waiting to get on something like a standby flight to get back to Miami. So we had hoped to get on this flight and we were waiting around and, and it was coming down to the wire and we didn't know if we can get on if there was room for us. And then finally, I, I believe she said the, the captain kind of tapped at his watch and said, well, I, I don't think we're going to make it. It's, it's it, There's not enough time here. And the flight takes off. And not long after that, they learned that that was flight 401 that crashed in the Everglades. They were this close to, to getting on that flight. On that flight. And they just happened yeah. to be
4: sitting in front of you at the Christmas play <laughs> you went to, right after we did
3: the show. Ex- yes, exactly. So strange wow. things like that do happen, but you got to talk to people, as we always say, or you're not going to find out. They're not going, to, you know, she wouldn't have said anything if we'd not been talking about Flight 401. So You could
4: have introduced, I too took my family to a Christmas play, by the way. Yeah.
5: Oh, nice.
3: And
4: we all went to uh, see A Christmas Carol in Raleigh, North Carolina, a show I've been going to since I was a kid. Same production every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, very enjoyable with uh, Evan Rachel Wood's dad, Ira David Wood. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yes, and her brother is in it. Yeah, but anyway, and I spoke to the people that were sitting in front of us at that play, and we talked about where they had come from and how long they'd been going to the show. Yeah. We had a whole conversation. Now, they could have had something to do with Flight 401. We would have never known that because it never would have come up. That's what I'm saying. It's not just that you had a conversation with the people in front of you. It was that they overheard you talking about Flight 401 and then she was
3: almost on that plane. That's just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, it kind of startled me a little. I mean, she was a really nice lady. We all very much enjoyed the play. It was very well done, great singing and dancing and, and a great stage performance. But had she been less personable she might not have turned around to to talk to us about her experience, which was one of those, just made it, almost got on that flight. And she was joking that uh, after it went down, they were like, wow, well, uh, I guess there was a 50-50 chance we could have made it. But even if they had, it would have been very, very uncomfortable to have been even a survivor on that. But yeah, really horrible accident. And, And, you know, if you work in the airline industry... As a flight crew member, you're aware of that possibility all the time, although still very much more safe than driving on the roads.
4: Well, everything is connected, I guess. It's like somebody always says. Oh, that's us. We always
6: say that. <laughs>
3: that's us. And and apparently it is.
4: Uh, all right. Before we get back to the story of Edgar Casey, we'd like to point out that permission has been granted by the Edgar Casey Foundation to share the portions of his readings quoted in tonight's show. All of his readings are the property of that foundation, and they're copyrighted. In 1971, as well as from 1993 to 2007, all rights are reserved. Just want to make that clear. And I uh, also want to say thank
3: you to them for giving us permission to share them. Indeed, very generous of them. So as we discussed at the end of part one, at that point, Al C. Lane, who had been helping Edgar Casey with the readings, and he was a real believer, he'd been talking it up in the local medical community while Casey was living at that boarding house, he decides he's going to go off and actually study osteopathy, which is... Now, we talked about that in part one. We didn't mean to make it sound like it's tied in with some other disciplines, such as naturopathy. It is a bona fide field of medicine nowadays, with the definition being a therapeutic system originally based upon the premise that manipulation of the muscles and bones to promote structural integrity could restore or preserve health. Now that, that is a Casey health tenet there. Uh, but the definition goes on to say, current osteopathic physicians use the diagnostic and therapeutic techniques of conventional medicine, as well as manipulative measures. So they're using modern Western medicine in osteopathy today. So we didn't mean to connect it with quackery of any kind. No, it's interesting. Quackery comes up.
4: Here's a definition of it from the medical dictionary at thefreedictionary.com that's interesting. Osteopaths, chiropractors, and physical therapists are the experts in manipulations or adjustments. The place of manipulation in medical care is far from settled, but millions of patients find relief from it, particularly backs, but also necks command most of the attention of the musculoskeletal community. This community includes orthopedic surgeons, osteopaths, general and family physicians, orthopedic physicians, chiropractors, physical therapists, massage therapists, specialists in orthotics and prosthetics, and even some dentists and podiatrists. Many types of headaches also originate in the musculoskeletal system. Studies comparing different methods of treating musculoskeletal back, head, and neck pain have not reached a consensus in spite of the huge numbers of people that suffer from it. So there's more on that. Yeah. We have a link to that, but it's you know that gives you a little bit of background on
3: yeah. it. Yeah. So at this point, Lane leaves for Franklin, Kentucky to become a professional osteopath. And what does Casey do? Well, the year is now 1904, September of 1904, and Edgar Casey opens up a photography studio in Bowling Green with his relative Frank Potter. And over the next year, the young doctors who are at the boarding house get Casey's cooperation along with some of their colleagues to investigate his abilities and the medical results of the treatments. The experiments they conducted supposedly confirmed that Casey's diagnoses with his readings were accurate. So one thing I will say about Casey's outlook on all this is that he always seemed to invite medical professionals looking into his phenomenon here, this practice that he was doing, rather than the other way around, whereas if you were a charlatan, you might not want the attention because you are pulling off some chicanery and you don't want too many eyes prodding into what you want to do. You want to keep making money at it. And that did not seem to be the case with Casey. He... He thought that one day what he was doing could be used by mainstream medical professionals, and he thought it was useful.
4: The other thing that I think is important that seems to be pretty clear is that he at no point was he ever trying to hide anything about what he did. Right. There was was no man behind the curtain. There was no pretending. The only thing you could ever say if you were convinced that he was an outright fraud and doing something on purpose to uh, trick people, the only thing that you could say about that would be that he was perpetrating the fraud by pretending to be asleep, and the words that were coming out of his mouth, that's the only part yeah. of it, the only component of it that you could say was not forthright, and there's no way to know that other than to look at the big picture of everything, which, of course, we're doing here. But there was never him saying, oh, you can't come in here, or you can't see how I do this, or don't go in right. that room, or any of that, and that <laughs> and that goes back to what uh, we talked about in part one, Dr. Munsterberg, who showed up to uh, debunk him. The first thing he said was, where's your cabinet? Where's it you? you know, I know you got a cabinet around here. And he's like no, what? there's there's no cabinet. cabinet. Of what? Dr. Caligari? Yeah, no, that's exactly what it, because you have to think when you look back on the charlatans and the people that claim to do this and that and the other, there would be a cabinet. And in the cabinet, there's another dude who knows how to play chess or there's whatever, you know, that's the first thing he said. Where's your, what's your secret? What's, where's your contraption that's helping you do all this stuff? And there wasn't one. So that's, I think that's an important thing to note about, about Mr. Casey.
3: Right. The only thing that he's doing here, again, it's not like people who can pull tumors out of uh, your body without breaking the skin. That, oh, that's, kind of that is insane. Have you seen video of that when they do that's that? That's excellent, excellent. Sleight uh, of hand. Mechanical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty amazing to watch. It would be called card mechanics, close up magic. It's really well done, sleight of hand. Yeah. But there's a lot of people that really buy into that. And by the way,
4: we're not, we should explain that a little more because we're being very oblique about it. But there there is a medical practice and I cannot remember where, what culture it's uh, particular to, but where these... The Philippines, Uh, I believe. The 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 shamans will come and just pull your organs out of you without creating any incisions.
3: Well, not not your organs that you need. It's mostly tumors. yeah, Yeah, tumors. That's what it is. Right. And so they get- And they're usually chicken McNuggets.
4: They get blood and push their hands up against your stomach, and it seems like they're reaching into your body and pulling- pulling the stuff yeah. out and people are, are paying to see these poor people are paying to see these folks. So,
3: well, usually it's a raw chicken McNugget and even the amazing Randy knows how to do that. He's demonstrated that I've seen before and it's, it is sleight of hand. Yes. Uh, there's, there's no magic to it, but, and I believe a lot of that happens in the Philippines. People are traveling there to go have that done, but that's a case where you're preying on desperate people and it, it's not great. The only thing you could say about Casey really is that if it was some kind of chicanery, He is having somebody feed him through an audio device of some kind, all this information, or he is some kind of crazy subconscious genius. Yeah. Because he had all this information. And I want to back up to him being able to, uh, that trick he could do, sleeping on a book and knowing all the contents. That's something that is easily and obviously debunkable right there on the spot. How could he possibly memorize every book you might possibly give him? So... That's something he could show you. So, if true, that's an amazing feat. So, maybe what you could say is that he was, yeah, some kind of crazy genius who memorized all this stuff and could recreate it while supposedly being asleep. But knowing his personality and what he was like, nobody around him ever seemed to think that. So, yeah, I'm totally on board with you is that he was totally open to inviting medical professionals to come take a look and give his practice, what he was doing, some legitimacy and he was open to having them do experiments and examinations until one event that happened, and at that point he was kind of over it, and it was an incident where one particular examination turned, you could say, very invasive, uncomfortable, and some even say violent. Do you remember the details of that incident from the book? Yeah, this
4: was pretty bad, and Again, in a way, this, this proves that when he was under or in his hypnotic state, he was under because it was unbelievable what these guys were doing to him. They were poking him with hat pins and prodding him. They were uh, experimenting on him while he was in his hypnotic state. A little bit like an alien abduction. Yeah, it's horrible. And at the time for this particular reading, Dr. James Blackburn, a dentist and a friend of his was the guy in there who was his guide. And he was trying to get them to stop. But one of them, one of the gentlemen that was there actually took the hat pin and thrust it all the way through one of Edgar's cheeks. Oh. All the way through. And then here, I'm going to read this little section from uh, Sugru's book about this. This this is pretty crazy. It's on page 158 of 424 of There is a River by Thomas Sugru in the Kindle edition. This one opened a penknife and ran the blade under one of Edgar's fingers. Oh! Slowly, the nail was lifted away from the flesh.
3: Oh, my goodness! There was
4: no indication of pain, no blood flowed, the knife was withdrawn. Suddenly, Edgar woke up. Immediately, he felt pain. The doctors began to apologize. Just a few scientific tests, they said. No harm was meant. Edgar lost his temper. He turned on Dr. Blackburn and the other doctors. Quote, I'm through. I've let you do anything you wanted to do with me. I've given you my time and never asked that you even be polite enough to think me sincere. I thought you wanted to find out the truth, but you don't. Nothing will convince you. Nothing will convince any of you. No matter how many miracles you see, you will never believe anything that will interfere with your smugness. You take it for granted that every man in the world is crooked except yourselves, and you will accept no proof of anyone's honesty. I'll never try to prove anything to any one of you again. I'll never give another reading unless it's for someone who needs help and believes I can give it to him. And he walked out. Wow. Uh, I'm so glad I asked you about that. Yeah, they pried his fingernail off. Now, and they're and, there, and <laughs> unbelievable. again, unbelievable. That that is horrible. I, I mean, it's ab- categorically horrible. But by the same token, it definitely proves that he was in some kind of hypnotic state. Yeah, like who can sleep through that? Nobody. Yeah, you're not gonna. You, you're not gonna pretend that you're doing a reading and let somebody pop your fingernail off. That's just not gonna happen. So that's
3: and not wince. Yeah, yeah. You know. And try and hold it together for another five minutes while you uh, come out of it. Right. And and the skeptical counterpoint to that is that the
4: whole thing's apocryphal, that it's made up to uh, contribute to his legend or something like that. But most of what we've been able to find from Sugru's book has been verifiable. It's, It's been about real people that you could track down, and granted, we didn't turn that page on every single person that's mentioned in the book, but there's enough real people in it that had there been a ton of false claims, they would have come forward, I should think. So I think well, it's yeah. it's
3: interesting. There were people named, there were real people that attended, other witnesses, multiple ones, actual doctors that you can find. And Suguru's book came out, it was contemporaneous. Right. That was published in the mid 40s. So it wasn't a long time after these events happened. If somebody's being maligned in the book, that could easily be resolved. So what I would say is that it does sound like a horrible alien abduction, and somehow he was able to, if you say he was faking it, and that story is true, maintain his composure to keep up the ruse, but it sounds very unlikely that you would go through that. Uh, Yeah, that's just, that's like torture. It's it's awful. But what he just said in the passage you read was a lot of what we talk about on the show about people believing their own baloney and that everyone else is wrong. They're right. They have all the answers. You must be a liar and a fake. Right. And here, we'll prove it. I'm going to shove this hat pin through your cheek. Well, just the prying up of the fingernail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How would a doctor, and these are medical doctors. I'm going to talk about this later in my conclusions, but you took a Hippocratic oath to do no harm. And this is not a necessary medical procedure. What, did they just get away from themselves? Like. It's hard to understand, but they want to so badly prove that this guy's a fake that they go to those measures. And I think the quotes too, a lot of things that's interesting about it,
4: it's a thought that I've had after, you know, my personal experience at the Sally house, which was more than just that recording. It was the experience of being there and everything that happened. And once that happens to you, you realize suddenly as someone for me who was seeking proof of things that were unexplainable and proof of how they work and where are these things coming from you realize that you don't need to prove it anymore. You don't care if anyone believes you. and, and But then you also know there's a reality to what you're experiencing that you, that, that's very real to you, but you can't explain it to anyone else. And that's kind of the end of the road. You're in a cul-de-sac at that point. Right. You know, it's like there's
3: there's nowhere to go. Yeah. Well, as you said, after this, Casey said he would only do readings for those seeking real help. And those who really believed in the process— So another note I have here for us to discuss is that the readings didn't seem to do much good for those that didn't believe in them. Is this a form of some kind of reverse placebo effect, where if you really don't believe it, it's not going to help you? I'm going to
4: talk about that in my conclusions, specifically the placebo effect. I have a lot to say about that. So getting back to the timeline of Casey's life, let's let's take a look at the bigger picture again here. Let's go back to January thirtieth, nineteen oh five. Believe it or not, that's the date that Gladys Davis Edgar Casey's stenographer was born. She wound up being with him, I think, 22 years, if I'm not mistaken. I'm quoting yeah. from memory there, but uh, for a long time. And we talked about her in part one as being one of the only ones that could keep up with him because of the, uh, and you'll hear some of his reading, the way he speaks in his readings tonight, but she was able to keep up with it and have it make sense and make sure that it flowed the way that it did when it was coming out of him. So that's pretty cool. In December of 1906, Uh, We're now, we're kind of early in Edgar's career as a prophet or a medium or whatever you want to call him. This is before he really embraced that. He knew that he had skills and he had, he's past the point of knowing that he could sleep on books and that sort of thing. But what he's really doing is photography and he has a photography studio with a partner and unfortunately a fire destroyed it in December of 1906 and that would be the first of two fires that affected the studios. I don't know why they kept burning down, but um
3: <laughs> things were not very safe back then. I, I remember my grandfather uh you know he was a uh, after he was in the military at uh, World War II he was a civilian working for the Air Force for an air Force base uh in Washington state, and it was their policy to unplug every office machine at the end of the day, yeah.
4: I can see that. And there's
3: a reason for that. Yeah, because things caught on fire Hard for then. it to
4: catch on fire if it's not plugged in.
3: Yeah, so that was a military order then, uh, you know, when wiring isn't as good as it is today with a, you know, not cloth insulators. But it also destroyed some artwork that Casey had on consignment in the yes. studio. So that's somebody else's artwork that he's storing there. That gets destroyed. So you're responsible for that. So it was a bit devastating. Yes, it was bad news for them. And it would be the first
4: in a lot of setbacks like that. On March 16th, 1907, Edgar and Gertrude, Casey, who, uh, nay, as you say, Gertrude Evans, (laughs) gave birth to their first son, Hugh Lynn Casey. But in September of that year, just a little less than a year from the prior fire, another fire, as I mentioned, burned down their second photo studio, which led to bankruptcy. Frank Potter, his partner, then withdrew from the business, but Casey reopened it by himself. He's, he's got a lot of perseverance. His wife, Gertrude, and their son, Hugh Lynn, returned to Hopkinsville, but Edgar decided to stay in Bowling Green to work off their debt. He became debt-free by 1909 and would leave Bowling Green, but he would be broke and have to start again from scratch. Now, Casey's readings with his own family's health issues were proven to be very successful, so this had lifted up his spirits and his self-confidence. At Christmas time, his father introduced him to homeopath Wesley H. Ketchum, also from Hopkinsville, who urged him to go into business together with his readings, but Casey again refused to profit from them. He was never comfortable with that. After spending some time back in Hopkinsville with his family, he then instead took a job with H.P. Tressler Photography Company in Alabama as a photographer. And I just want to touch on this Ketchum thing a little bit. There was no shortage of people who felt like there would be good sources of income from turning his readings into a business and yeah, making he's a golden money them. goose of yes, sorts. Yes, exactly. He is the golden goose. And I'm not saying that these people necessarily had bad intentions, But a lot of them would come along in the course of his life and try to convince him that they should be business partners, and they would handle everything, and all he had to do was lay on the couch and do the readings, and they would charge money for him. But he just wouldn't do that because he felt that it was morally and ethically irresponsible. So I think that's significant. It speaks to his character after all the problems he had with the fires and having to get out of debt and bankruptcy and his family not even living in the same house, which can be a hardship. He stuck to his guns, and he refused to make any substantial money from the readings. But Dr. Ketchum kept after Casey, trying to get him to go into business with him. But Casey continued to resist, and Ketchum believed in the phenomenon, and he was talking it up within the medical community until the newspapers took notice. And then, and this is a pretty famous bit, but on October 9th, 1910, the New York Times Published a long article on Casey's psychic abilities and process. And Casey explained to the reporter that in his sleep like state, he was easily able to get into what to him was different from regular sleep, and that somehow it was achieved by the properties of the subconscious mind. However, the thing about this article is, and we mentioned this before in the, I believe, in the Cold Open in part one, but it was. Dismissive and condescending towards Casey, they described him as illiterate, lacking a, any formal education, and explained that uh, I believe it said something like, uh, "I mean, the equivalent of like hey seed goes to sleep and cures <laughs> yeah. people's illnesses, or something like that." I'm I'm paraphrasing, but it was yeah, he's a Carney sideshow bumpkin,
3: yeah, in a not you know in a New York reference, you yeah, know, just. That somehow he's doing all the stuff he claims, and, and how is he doing this? He's got no education from one of the New England colleges and universities here. That's right. and it, there, Yes, exactly.
4: And there was, at the time, I think there was a lot more of that... North-South vitriol going on in terms of education oh, yeah. and upper class, and we have these fine institutions, and what are y'all doing down there? And
3: <laughs> What are y'all, what are y'all doing down there? That
4: sort of thing. And I, I speak as someone from North Carolina, by the way, so it's an interesting, I guess, snapshot of what was going on at the time. And the reality was that Casey wasn't illiterate. He actually enjoyed reading a great deal, and he had completed – he did not finish, but he had completed a a good portion of the ninth grade. That's our understanding. So um, as Forrest said before, that's all you needed back then to work on farms or do other uh, skilled labor type of positions. So
3: Regular jobs, business jobs, things like that. But imagine how smart you could be. If you could sleep on a book and know its entire contents, how many books could you get through with all the naps I take? (laughs) And there's a difference between acquiring the knowledge and understanding it, of course, but imagine uh, you could have a college degree without, of course, the professors explaining the material to you, but you could ingest the material from any college course in a short amount of time.
4: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's right up there with plugging a cable in the back of your head and then knowing how to fly a helicopter. But um, <laughs> exactly, Casey finally broke down and agreed to go into business with Dr. Ketchum, and he agreed to that partnership with specific arrangements. In lieu of being paid for his readings, he decided the company would provide him with a photo studio, which was intended to be the means for earning him a living, and then also a separate office that would be built just for the readings. The contract fine print was baffling to Casey, but there was a stipulation that 50% of the earnings would go to Edgar and his father, Leslie, Squire Casey. And then Casey had hoped for more scientific oversight from doctors, but only doctors from Hopkinsville would participate, and most of the requests came from across the country and the world. Therefore, no direct medical examinations would be feasible. And this is an important thing to remember. We'll talk about the skeptics' viewpoint here in a little bit. But that's one of the things they say, that none of this was scientifically evaluated, that the readings are anecdotal. It wasn't because he wasn't trying. It it was that classic thing where I, I believe the scientific community was largely dismissive of him, and they didn't want to come check it out. Yeah. So you get into this Catch-22 situation. It's like, well, he never had it checked out. And it's like, well, the door was open. Where were you guys? No. Where, no. where were you? Because he was ready to do that. He wanted to understand it too. So that's just a little aside from me. But um, due to the wide variety of types of remedies that came from the readings, doctors from nearly every field would be needed to weigh in. But for the first time, Edgar forms the Psychic Reading Corporation with his father, Leslie, Dr. Wesley Ketchum, and Albert, no. And Edgar Casey would be giving daily readings about medical conditions. Well, well what a great job. You get to do it laying down, yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah, take a On nap and talk. It's, uh, <laughs> right. but, you know, but the, they were draining for him, though. That's, and that's something to consider. I, I believe he had, at some point he had been told, I don't know if it was through a reading, I think it was, that he should never do more than two a day. Yeah. And that it would kill him. And he, but he, at times, because he was seemingly rather selfless and generous, he was doing six to eight a day for people. So yeah, it's, yeah. uh, it's interesting there.
3: Well, things are looking up generally here. He has an opportunity to actually do a business that he loves, which is photography and a more normal business that he thought he could make uh, money at and support his family, rather than this other stuff that he always viewed a little dubiously, or, or he was really unsure about it, where it was coming from. Was this okay to be telling people this stuff? And here, though, is a sad example of something joyous turning to tragedy. On March 28th of 1911, Edgar and Gertrude's second son, Milton Porter Casey, is born. However, ironically, it seems Edgar and especially Gertrude didn't themselves Take Edgar's own abilities for diagnoses too seriously, and it's thought that their hesitation in giving a reading's treatment to their infant son resulted in his ultimate death. Their baby died on May 17th, and this failure to save his own son would become an argument for his critics and skeptics against his authenticity and the phenomenon's effectiveness. However, when Casey's wife Gertrude came down with a terminal case of tuberculosis and their own doctor had lost hope in her recovery. They used the readings, which somehow cured her, and she fully recovered. So, Scott, we just heard that with Stanley, F.O. Stanley, I believe, of the Stanley Hotel, where somehow he moves to Colorado and he, he gets over tuberculosis. But in this case with Gertrude, their own doctor said, I can't do anything for you. Right. That's it. You're It's terminal. I have no solutions, but... Here, apparently, Casey was able to save his wife. So you'll hear that in the skeptical arguments that we're going to talk about later. But in this case, people will say, well, look, he couldn't even save his own son. So wouldn't he want to do that? How effective could it be? But then they'll ignore the fact that if you're taking the whole story of everything that happened, that they actually tried to give readings to his son, they won't look into the fact that he used them, apparently, to save his own wife from something that is usually fatal. And here is another ironic point, which is that even with Casey's psychic abilities, he wasn't able to immediately see he was being taken advantage of. Casey was only able to utilize this psychic insight while in this subconscious slash superconscious state, and therefore he had no knowledge of what he'd said during his trance which is not a trance, it's the sleep-like state. But I know, we keep going back and forth on that. And I, it's funny,
4: I I know that in Jess Stern's book, she says the word trance quite a bit. So I don't know. I don't know if it's verboten in terms of describing his condition.
3: It's not totally accurate, but it's an easy way to understand it. That's all yeah. I'll, I'll say is that. It's just it, not a
4: googly-eyed trance.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, he would not arms straight out in front of you yeah. walking around like Frankenstein's monster. No. Right, right. Uh, well, here's this story. In 1912, Casey had learned that Ketchum had not been totally honest with him about the nature of the questions in the readings and that he had used them to try and gain financially. So he's asking him some questions while he's under. Also, maybe another point, if you believe this story in this account, that Casey was in a different state of mind totally while he was under in that this guy is asking him about like, hey, what about that stock pick? Uh, coming up on, uh, you know, in the stock market here. What do you you think? Uh, You know, whatever he was asking him were not totally about medical questions. And this, of course, would have upset Casey greatly. But Ketchum's excuse was that, well, the company was not receiving any financial support from the medical community. So he had to use these means maybe to beef up the finances here for their partnership. The bad news is, People didn't always take his advice, and uh, yeah. Yeah. You'll, you'll find out that they should have. Right. And it, well, it works for some things, but not everything. So, you know, but of course, upon learning this, Casey quits immediately, and he returns to his old job at the Tressler Photography Company in Selma, Alabama.
4: As news of Casey's abilities spread, so did the number of requests for readings, and he finally asked for voluntary donations to support his family and give readings full-time. He was hoping his invention of the commodities card game, Pitt— based on the Chicago Board of Trade, would help with their finances. But as we told you in part one, that didn't really work out. Casey would go on to give readings in his sleep state while aided by a hypnotist, and eventually, Gertrude and his oldest son, Hugh Lynn, would take over these duties for hypnotist Al Lane after moving back to be with Casey in the fall of 1913 in Selma, where he had acquired his own photo studio. In 1923, Casey added an 18-year-old, Gladys Davis, to be his longtime shorthand transcriptionist, who would eventually become like
3: a member of the family, having been so involved uh, she was, I think, actually living at their house. Yeah, I think so. Uh, she just kind of moved in. Well, you're spending all this time, and there's over 13,000 readings so uh, in total, but that's it's a lot of transcribing. Well, in January of 1914, bad news struck again.
4: Casey's son, Hugh Lynn, severely burnt his eyes while playing in the studio with photographic flash powder. The doctor thought he must have put a match to it. So it, it, for those of you that don't know, back in the old days, that's how you got a flash so you could expose film. Uh, flash powder was explosive. It's it's kind of like a – well, if you play Call of Duty or
3: Ghost <laughs> <goes> Recon, you <laughs> use a flashbang. Yeah. Same thing. Uh, yeah. But- well, it's as you'll see in the movies, uh, the photographer will hold up a small – v-shaped trough full of flash powder and they ignite it and that gives the illumination for these photos that took very long exposures and that's why people look so stiff and serious is that they hold that pose for a long time it's not like the shutters of today where it's in a fraction of a second so also i believe they had uh, metal collars at the back of their neck to keep their head still so people looked uncomfortable stiff and slightly strange And all those old tiny photos.
4: Yes. And so Hugh Lin's eyes were very severely damaged. And this is a very interesting case for me because I feel like this is a case of either really crazy luck or it's proof that what he was doing was effective. And I'll explain why right now. The doctor said that one of Hugh Lin's eyes was going to have to come out. So Edgar looked at the doctor and he, and he said to them directly, and I'm, I'm taking this from Thomas Segrou's book, page 197 to 424. He said to the doctor, if you had a little boy, you wouldn't take his eye out, would you? And the doctor replied, I wouldn't take any little boy's eye out if I could help it. We're only trying to do what is best for you. At which point Hugh Lynn said, my daddy knows what's best for me. When my daddy goes to sleep, he's the best doctor in the world.
3: <laughs> well,
4: and I thought that was a pretty fascinating little quote there. Of of course, this quote is a little bit too perfect, but I, I do love the idea of this little boy looking at his dad and saying, you know, go to sleep. And that's the next thing he said, please, daddy, will you go to sleep and see if you can help me? This is in, uh, again, wow. in Segru's book, There is a River. So he did. And the suggestion was given to him while he was in his trance-like hypnotic state, and Edgar began to speak. He said he could see the body. Sight was not gone. The solution used by the doctors was helpful, but to it should be added tannic acid. Dressings should be changed frequently and applied constantly for 15 days, during which the body was to be kept in a darkened room. After that, the eyes would be well. When Edgar awoke, the doctors told him that tannic acid was too strong for use on the eyes. However, they were sure the sight was gone, so their objections were technical. They agreed to make the new solution and apply it. The operation to remove the eye could be postponed temporarily. As soon as the fresh bandages were put on Hugh's eyes, he said, quote, this must be daddy's medicine. It doesn't hurt. Well, sure enough, Hugh Lynn got better, retained his eyesight, and the eye didn't have to be taken out. So that is a, definitely a case. If this all went down the way they're describing it, it's that is a case of him coming up with an unorthodox solution to this medical problem. How could he know about this? My question is, what book would he have read that would have taught him that adding tannic acid to this solution that these doctors suggested would have saved Hugh eyes? It's hard for me to fathom Right. Where, how they came around to that solution, but the long and short of it is that Hugh Lynn was able to keep both his eyes and live
3: a normal life with his sight after that accident, so. Yeah, the the skeptics, as we'll get to in the skeptical section, would say, I would imagine, well, he was a voracious reader, uh, Michael Shermer might say that, where he read all these books and he read medical books as well, and so he was throwing around different cures and it just kind of, it was happenstance that uh, he was able to cure his son's vision and on the other hand, skeptics would say, look, he couldn't even cure his own infant son, nor his cousin, but at the same time dismissing cases where it did seem to work, whatever was coming through him. So he again, that's the crazy genius argument that he was able to ingest all these medical books and and this and that. And, and that's an extraordinary feat in and of, of itself. But he was hit or miss in that some of the time these cures worked, and that's what people stuck to, and that became hearsay and anecdotes and it was just folk remedies that he'd picked up from somewhere else and sometimes they worked. So that's that would be the argument against this actually being effective.
4: Well, in the following years, Casey would receive offers from profiteers who were interested in using his abilities to gain a fortune in everything from cotton futures Uh, In fact, one cotton farmer offered $100 a day for market picks. That was a lot of money back then. Uh, That was a lot of money. uh, To picking winners in horse races, to finding buried treasure. Casey was initially quite reluctant to help, but he was eventually persuaded to try his abilities as an experiment. In 1919... He entered into a partnership with oil men exploring in Texas, hoping to raise money to build a hospital. This was a, a big goal of his. After four years, the venture proved unsuccessful. And there's a lot of details about that story in Sugru's book. It's pretty interesting. You should check it out mm-hmm. if you want to know more about it. But the few times he did try to use his talents for wealth were unsuccessful and proved no better than guessing. These experiments at divining money left Casey emotionally and physically drained, discouraged, and troubled. He then decided he would only use his talents to help those in serious need and those with medical conditions. And the other interesting thing about this is, is that it reinforced for him the idea that he could not use his skills for profit or to help other men profit. It could only be to help folks. And that The failure of the oil operation was something that really reinforced that belief for him uh,
3: personally. What's a really interesting point here in that, can this power be only used for good, as the comic books will tell you, it's something that is only used to help people get better health and to cure their maladies. It's not used for money. On the other hand, wherever this information is coming from, you'll know that case uh, when we go to talk about it with remote viewing that Russell Targ and company did try an experiment with remote viewing and I believe made like $120,000 in silver futures or the stock market uh, picking correctly. And people would say, well, they're just guessing they got lucky. But he claims these guys are actual scientists and right. they charted everything and they have apparently the data to back that up. So take that how you will in the approach and the intent. And intention is a big thing here. With this and all spiritual matters what do you intend to do with it so yeah can his talents only be used for good and not material gains something interesting to think about
2: selling a little or a lot (laughs) shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business
1: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
2: Hi, this is Nicholas Nome from the Adventures of Nicholas Nome YouTube Kids Show. And when I'm not sneezing my way in and out of trouble, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends, now
4: back to the show.
3: Well, in 1923, there comes a turning point in the nature of the readings and Casey's own belief system. A successful printer and student of metaphysics named Arthur Lammers convinces Casey to start giving readings on philosophy and metaphysical topics. Because during a reading for Lammers, Casey apparently told him about his past lives and the workings of reincarnation, which Lammers already believed in. But Casey didn't. It wasn't accepted within his or any traditional Christian belief system, although ideas about reincarnation were being popularly discussed at that time. Edgar Casey couldn't believe what he had told Lammers during his readings about reincarnation and astrology being viewed in a positive light. He ended up questioning Lammers and his stenographer, Gladys, about what he had said during his readings. Now, this following exchange appears in Thomas Suguru's book, There is a River, and it can also be found in the Wikipedia entry for Edgar Casey. if you'd like to read it. We think it's interesting here, and it bears repeating. So this is the exchange. Edgar Casey, I said all that? I could have said all that in one reading. Lammers, no, but you confirmed it. You see, I have been studying metaphysics for years, and I was able, by a few questions, by the facts you gave, to check what is right and what is wrong with a whole lot of the stuff I've been reading. The important thing is that the basic system which runs through all the mystery religions, whether they come from Tibet or the pyramids of Egypt, is backed up by you. It's actually the right system. Now, this next statement here is interesting. Uh, It's a statement from Casey that Gladys transcribed, and it's fascinating because you'll now hear the way that Casey spoke during his sleep-like readings and how all of these messages from the other side... Are composed in content and tone. If you believe any of this at all, Uh, here it is. This This was really, by the way, this was the episode to bring back our catchphrase. We know people are going to have a lot of problems with some of these aspects, uh, aside from it just being a biography of a of an interesting guy who had a large impact on a lot of American culture uh, here in the states and uh, and around the world. But there are some concepts that people are going to, as they say, well, uh, you lost me when he said this, or exposed this idea or reincarnation and we wanted to express that Casey himself would have said you lost me here but I said it myself so i, I don't <laughs> know why I, I don't know why i said that and that's the case here so here's a statement of the language that was actually used and personally i would say when you do read up on the transcriptions they are a little mystical hard to understand maybe obtuse But you'll get the point across, but it also leaves the readings open to interpretation. So here's the reading. In this, we see the plan of development of those individuals set upon this plane, meeting the ability to enter again into the presence of the creator and become a full part of that creation. Insofar as this entity is concerned, this is the third appearance on this plane and before this one as the monk. We see glimpses in the life of the entity now, As we were shown in the monk, in this mode of living, the body is only the vehicle ever of that spirit and soul that waft through all times and ever remained the same. Right.
4: And so what I want to make clear here is that the entity, which they're using the word that I said he never said in part one, uh, (laughs) the the entity in this case is Lammers. Uh, that he's talking about. That's who the reading is for. He's not doing the reading for himself. So he is suggesting that Lammers had a past life as a monk. I just want to make that clear in case you weren't following it.
3: Yeah. That's probably what I would have been. Uh, You know, you figure in the Middle Ages, as they say, you either fought, which meant you were a nobleman of rank, and you were probably a knight. You had a very good chance of ending up fighting for the king or whomever. Uh, was the leader, or you prayed, that was another job in the middle, or you worked, which means you were a serf, you were a farmer, and you gave some of your uh, crops back to the king. Right, money always goes up, I learned that from the Sopranos. (laughs) So the idea back then, well, monk's not so bad, you get to do a lot of reading, and and yeah, there's chores, and uh, it's kind of solitary and lonely. So in any case, this is interesting for both Lammers, who believes in reincarnation, but more so for Edgar Casey because he's like, what? I I, I said that? <laughs> and it made a turning point for both of them. Now we're going to play a clip that we got from YouTube, which is from the ARE YouTube channel of their own, which is an actual recording of Casey's voice during a reading while he is under. And it's really interesting because it's Southern, it's old-timey, and it's also otherworldly all at the same time.
4: Yes, and special thanks to the Association for Research and Enlightenment for giving us permission to use this here and share it with our listeners.
6: Love alcohol adds two ounces of witch hazel, two ounces of Russian white oil, one ounce of ancient... Of benzoin, one quarter ounce of oil of sassafras, one quarter ounce of pure olive oil. Shake these together, each one before small to be massaged into this. Of the body, as it indicated, from the sixth fem, dorsal, to the first and second cervical, and in that direction, not from the cervical area toward the dorsal, but from the sixth and seventh dorsal toward the cervical, just what the body will absorb, see? we would also, after such, such manipulation, then massage and make after the fourth or fifth treatment of this compound, use those are corrective measures in. The alignment around the seabird spinal cord, not moving all at once in the area indicates where these are necessary for alignment.
4: So that was the first time Edgar Casey realized that there were other mystical aspects of the information that was coming to him, metaphysical concepts he'd probably never come across in any serious way or at least once he never considered seriously and would never have a place in his faith or reason. Now Casey's earlier readings have mentioned or alluded to the concept of reincarnation, but since readings were not categorically transcribed until 1923, there's not a lot of records of the reference except for a reading given 12 years earlier in 1911 while in a hypnotic state, Casey had said something about the soul being transmigrated. And uh, a- another aside that I want to say, just went from the, <laughs> when you read sagru's book, this information about reincarnation, it's really specific. It's really, it's, Because a lot of times you hear about this and you have these questions like, well, how does it work? When does the soul enter the body when it's coming back? It talks about all that. It's all in the book. Well, it's like there's this window of opportunity. There's six months. If the baby is stillborn, that doesn't mean that the soul – like it gets real specific about the details of the mechanics of reincarnation. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, if you believe any of this at all, but I, I did, sure. I did enjoy reading. I was like, "Oh, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting my cognitive closure on reincarnation here." But <laughs> well, <it's> um, a...
3: <laughs> yeah, it, it, so what you're saying is that there are rules. There are there are mechanics. Yeah. yeah,
4: there's there's mechanics to it. I mean, it makes sense. We all saw "Defending Your Life," right? Uh, no, actually, nobody's
3: seen that. I've seen it. <laughs> no, I've I've seen it. It's, it's a funny movie. It, it's great. Yes, it is. Uh, but that's what's interesting is that yeah, if you're willing to buy into this, then. There are ways this has to happen, and that's what's coming through Casey, which he is not believing at all. He is not picking up anything that is being laid down by his sleeping self. Right. But one thing I'll say about the verbiage of the readings is that, yeah, they can come across as vague, uh, with a somewhat elusive meaning, even when you read them. So imagine Gladys trying to transcribe all that and hopefully get it right, because I'm I'm sure some things are uh, hard to understand, and it'd be rude to make them back up, make the entity universal consciousness, back up a second, could you, could you repeat that? Uh, but he could be talked to, he could be conversed with through this state. I just wanted to re- uh, repeat here, mention that he did answer a question. A- again, we have to make a differentiation between Casey himself and either his subconscious mind or this uh, omniscient intelligence coming through him when asked how the pyramids were built. I believe the reading statement that came back was, uh, it was utilized by those gases which appear in the atmosphere and not much else it's not like oh yeah they built a ramp and then they floated the blocks up and that's how it was done you know now you know it was a bit cryptic because now people have to read into like well what do you mean by utilization of such gases this and that did he did he mean balloons like helium balloons How big would they need to be? How would they get helium? Uh, Hot air balloons? Maybe they can make those. So it opens it up to a lot of interpretation, and that's the stuff that you get from psychics and from the other side. It seems to be all a little bit loose. And also, here's a funny aside. I had a friend who was uh, very good friends with this very popular medium and past-life regressionist to the rock and roll stars whose name, I believe, was Light that's the name she went by. And one funny anecdote I heard from her is that, yeah, people would have these sessions with her and she'd have to skip over a lot of stuff. I think I made a joke about this before. People always want to hear like, well, tell me about when I was the king of so-and-so or I was the princess of whatever. It's like, you, you weren't that. Yeah. (laughs) There's about 8,000 years where you're being chased through the tundra, the frozen tundra. Do you want to hear about that? It's like, well, no, that's not interesting. So that was her joke is that, yeah, a lot of your lives, like you're a villager. You know, that's that's also in Defending Your Life where a, a guy is, uh, I believe he was being chased by a lion. Yes, yes. And uh, and an old guy was a little girl licking a lollipop. Like,
4: yeah, and hell? he's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> <So> <laughs> is he, that's in the Past Lives Pavilion. They go in there. That's we've, right. We've mentioned this on the show 50,000 times, but yeah, it's yeah, so, so, so funny because <laughs> they go in this, it's like Epcot or whatever, Disney, and they go in there right. and- They see films of who they used to be. And then like, and the host of it is Shirley MacLaine. So she comes on and then off camera, you hear a woman go, oh my God.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's It's hilarious. Yeah. No, that's the thing is that it's never what you might have thought you were this or that in a past life. You you don't know. But a lot of it is, yeah, just think about most of humanity. People just, they are born, they live their lives, uh, they toiled. They completed their works, they had some fun, and then you die, and then that repeats itself for millennia. But oh, geez, so in this I'm gonna case, go have a drink. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs>
4: it's not all She's meaningless. describing my life so far <laughs> except for the death part which is around the corner
3: <laughs> well this will last forever scott what we're doing here as long as there's an internet I
4: suppose. yeah until the next uh solar flare and then wipes out because we don't have hard copies of any of this i do believe that we have uh some things backed up on servers in salt mines though where they're safe from the emps oh, very good. yeah how good about thinking. that
3: Thank you. Yeah, not too, uh, not too shabby here. But we all just do our thing, and then that's the end of it. And, and a few of us uh, will have a monumental life. But Casey himself, at first, you know, he he didn't believe any of this. He remained unconvinced that the message from the other side in his reading could be referencing reincarnation or astrology of all things. Arthur Lammer's point of view was that this reading was confirmation of the metaphysical beliefs. He held and acquired through his studies, and now mentioned by a spiritual force through a neutral host, in a way. Lammers could only tell Casey that this one reading had opened up the door to new concepts for him and spiritual communications from a higher source. And he would go on to continue to share what he had learned about metaphysics with Casey.
4: Well, later in November of 1923, Arthur Lammers invited Casey and his family to come to Dayton, Ohio, to continue their readings into philosophical, metaphysical, and astrological subjects. And Casey eventually agreed, while his wife Gertrude was skeptical, but she was also a little bit interested. And uh, the reason this was happening in Ohio, I'm going to just go ahead and say, is because Mm. everything weird Happens in Ohio, like the greatest collection of friends of the show that we have with all kinds of weird stories. They're all in Ohio, all of them, every single one. Of, it's crazy. It's like yeah. 75% of the people we interact with. It's a central focal point to be sure for this continent. Yeah, yeah it's 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 amazing to me. Anyway, so uh, shout out to Ohio and all our friends out there. Um, Indeed. The work that they generated there, they did a lot of readings, and info was covered about metaphysical topics, in which case he had a hard time conforming to his existing devout Christian beliefs. But in fact, he was so conflicted and torn up about having to consider the concept of something like reincarnation, fitting in with his Christian teachings and doctrines, that he once again lost his voice, remember that, when he got the laryngitis that he had to be treated for periodically, and he wanted to stop giving readings. And Casey did a reading for himself to try and find some sort of reconciliation with the conflict and maybe some guidance, and he was told by this otherworldly intelligence that if he was going to stop giving readings, his life's mission in this lifetime would be accomplished and complete. In the back and forth exchanges between Casey and the intelligence source, referring to itself as the seemingly collective we, like we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. Casey was eventually persuaded to keep on giving readings about metaphysics
3: and spiritual ontology. Yeah, Al Lammers also tried to persuade Casey that the readings were beneficial for metaphysical enlightenment and could fit within Christian thinking. And here's a quote slash mention in that wiki entry that I suspect will garner some serious critiquing from some of our listeners like Matthew G. Alderman, who are very knowledgeable about theology. Uh, Quote, "...Lammers declared that the fifth chapter of Matthew was the constitution of Christianity, and the Sermon on the Mount was its declaration of independence." end quote. Now, I don't know enough about these matters to comment, but I I thought it would just be fun to mention this and just see the Facebook group thread on this episode blow up. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure how that fits in. People are just like, oh, come on, he's totally wrong. So there you go. That's Al Lammers' point of view is that he is working these new agey concepts into Christianity and making it fit. Now, eventually, Casey started to come around a little uh, himself regarding the, well, to him, the inclusion of these far-out metaphysical concepts, like reincarnation, into his traditional Christian beliefs. And since he had read the Bible so many times, he was extensively familiar with its content, and he used that knowledge to try and convince his own family that reincarnation and other non-traditional teachings could jive with scripture. So in late 1923, Lammers wanted to finance some kind of institution that could implement Casey's therapies and teachings. However, Lammers himself was having money problems by then. And and by the time Casey's family got to Dayton to join him, Lammers couldn't help with the funding. Yeah, Lammers wanted to help, but it, you know,
4: life happens to people. And I, I guess he got the the Suger's book is nonspecific about it, but mm-hmm. he got into financial difficulties according to page two hundred and forty three of There Is a River, the Kindle Edition. It says he was enmeshed in lawsuits that kept him in Cincinnati, required his presence in court every day. All his money was tied up. He was in danger of losing his home in Dayton. And so he was pretty much out of the picture at that point. Wow.
5: Yeah.
3: Yeah, that's, that stuff happens. Fortunes come and go. Well, as Casey decided then to focus more on providing health treatments and ones that all along weren't accepted as traditional Western medicine, you could say, he started to gain attention of the American Medical Association. Since the remedies involve therapies we're more familiar with nowadays, a lot of the stuff we've heard about, but probably were even more suspect back then, it's easy to see why he might come under scrutiny. For example, things like the therapeutic use of food with synergistic combinations and balance, uh, essential oils, salts, herbs and minerals, castor oil packs, colonics, natural poultices, and tinctures, another favorite word around here, <laughs> tinctures, Took me a long time to figure out how to say that. Tinctures. still not getting it right. Teachers, Things like electrotherapy and magnetic stimulation, muscle and bone manipulation via massage and forms of chiropractic therapy, and ultraviolet light and chromotherapy or color therapy. These were just some of the elements involved which contemporary medicine would raise an eyebrow at. This is a lot of five-syllable words here. You did very good. I'm impressed. Oh, I've been practicing all night. That's why I'm (laughs) super tired and and really out of it. (laughs) anyway. But I'm glad I got through that. That's just a few of the things. I mean, it's so many, as we said before, different variations of elements and factors working in and different techniques that so many different types of doctors would be needed to oversee this stuff to make sure it was done uh, properly and that the methodologies were being perfected. So it'd be hard to really get contemporary Western medical professionals to weigh in and and provide some advice and guidance on this stuff in, in order to standardize it. So... Uh, as we will say later on, these treatments were really specifically tailored for the individual. Well, another thing I was going to say, you know, regarding the phrase traditional medicine, you know, I was going to say traditional medicine, but really what tradition? Because at least some of those mentioned remedies seem actually more historically traditional being used for centuries in Chinese and Eastern medicine and with folk medicine. Well, in any case, this increased attention from the AMA, and that's one of the reasons Casey wanted to start involving licensed doctors and practitioners in the process in order to provide some legitimacy to the therapies. Well, as an explainer here, a a very generalized and summarized reason for the use of all these elements and concoctions for one health goal comes from a quote that can be found in Sugru's biography and also in the wiki entry, stated as, quote, assimilation of needed properties through the digestive system from food taken into the body end quote that meaning that all of the remedies and procedures were utilized in order to initiate and maintain and back to the quote here the proper equilibrium of the assimilating system end quote so that's a basic tenet of the Casey remedies in that it seems to be designed to help the body achieve proper digestion, That would facilitate the assimilation of necessary nutrients to help the body function and heal itself of the specific malady and of maintaining good health for everyone. And that doesn't seem all that crazy of a goal to me anyway. Of course, as long as the elements and procedures aren't harmful or counterproductive, and there also seems to be a lot of medical research into the idea that good food and nutrients can now be used as healing medicine. And this is also not a new idea as the Chinese have been into that practice for centuries. Oh, and also here
4: comes another Casey therapeutic aid that will be a big red skeptical flag for some. The use of crystals and gemstones in healing. Ooh. Some readings proposed that patients spend less time with mental stresses and anxiety inducing work and more time relaxing on a sandy beach. I'm sure a lot of us can get with that <laughs> treatment and feel that there is something therapeutic and restorative, uh, good for the soul, about being at the ocean and laying on the sand. But for oh, the I usage, like it, yeah. yeah, I love it too. But for the usage as a treatment that came through Casey's readings, it was the sand crystals themselves that held
3: healing properties. Well, I mean, you can listen to the radio with crystals. Uh, Crystals rectify or detect radio signals or vibrational energy. And ideas like string theory would have us consider that vibration is a key element to energy. And matter in the universe, blah, 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 blah. It's all connected. There you go. So Casey also recommended the use of vibration therapy. So yeah, vibration's a big deal. Then with him, and of course, nowadays. Yeah. And this
4: all culminates with, and supposedly because of the rapid healing properties of of crystals. Uh, During a reading in 1925, a message came through Casey that he needed to move to Virginia Beach, Virginia to be near the beach where there's mm-hmm. plenty of sand crystals, and
3: that's what he did. By this time, Edgar Casey's full-time occupation was with the readings, and he had several employees and volunteers helping with the efforts, with his wife Gertrude now guiding all the sessions. And although money was tight for the operation, and his dreams for a hospital and official organization had to be put on hold again, He did find one supporter in a New York stock trader named Morton Blumenthal, who, along with his brother, were fans of Casey's readings and vision and agreed to invest in development, first buying him a house in Virginia Beach. So a lot of people weren't really into moving to Virginia Beach because, you know, they have lives uh, elsewhere and coming from Ohio, so they didn't want to pack up and move. But hey, that's what the voice said, so you got to do it. And Virginia Beach sounds lovely. So uh, there are worse places you would have to be called to to go do your thing. Yeah, you know it's great. Saying? Hey, <laughs> yeah.
4: preaching to the choir, I love the East Coast. I love the beach on the East Coast. I think uh, I love Virginia Beach, but I'm also particularly fond of North Carolina beaches. It's, you know, where I yeah. grew up. I grew up going to the beach down there. It's just gorgeous. It is a great place to live. It's it's hell on cars, though, I'll tell <laughs> you a that. If salty you, spray. As a car yes. person, yeah, I, I will tell you, It's we used to... When I was a kid, when my family, we put a galvanized nail outside overnight, and in the morning, it would be covered in rust.
3: <laughs> be One rusty. day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, all that salt air is good for you, they say. And apparently that was the message coming through to Casey himself, pack up and move everything to Virginia Beach. So could have been a lot worse. But the Association of National Investigators was established on May 6th, 1927, and headed by Morton Blumenthal as president. His brother and a few others as vice presidents, Edgar Casey would be the secretary and treasurer, and Gertrude would become the assistant secretary. Casey's wife. Yes. So really, the association was to oversee the hospital's construction and scientific investigation of the treatments. The association also received a little bit of help from the scientific community, although not very much. Dr. Mosley Brown, who was the head of the psychology department at Washington and Lee University, joined in after becoming convinced of the effectiveness of the readings. And this guy, he's kind of interesting here, Scott. I don't know if you know much about him, but Dr. Sunker A. Busy... His last name is spelled B-H-I-S-E. He is a, a fellow from India. I think the wiki entry will spell it B-I-S-L-E-Y. is Bisley, but other entries will say it's pronounced Busy B-I- gotten, yes, there are jokes there. Uh, B-I-S-E-Y. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this guy was pretty interesting. He was a notable chemist, Indian inventor. And his story was that he was dying in Paris, France of a severe malarial infection, which then was treated with a crude thick black liquid. This is from his entry uh, that was used as a household remedy for fevers made out of seaweed. And he made a full recovery. So there's some iodine in there. And that was the secret of his thing. But this guy, uh, he was credited with over 200 inventions, uh, about 40 of which he took patents on. And uh, things like a typecaster machine, which could uh, spit out type at 1,200 characters a minute. Hmm. So this guy, yeah, he's an interesting character. He's pretty smart. Yeah, just quickly, I actually popped over to a website called thebetterindia.com. We have a
4: link on mm-hmm. him here. He is, according to this website, the, end in quotes, Indian Edison, who dazzled the world with his inventions. Entirely self-trained, from colonial era Bombay, shot to global fame with the Bizo type, or Bizet type, which you said. Yeah. Yet he remains all but forgotten in his own country. Time this Changed, and it's uh, hashtagged Forgotten Heroes in History. So it's pretty interesting. And it says, what's remarkable about this self-trained man is that he came up at a time when India, under British colonial rule, barely offered any institutional support to potential scientists and inventors like they do today. So,
3: Yeah, uh, his father was the Sardar Armin of Surat. I'm sure that's a title. I don't know what that is. But yeah, one of those kind of a strangely, weirdly charmed lives in that he was exposed to a lot of different things, had, uh, was a very curious child, and he got sick in 1910. And then after that recovery, later on in the 30s, that's when he would hook up with Casey.
4: Yeah. Oh, and by the way, this page also says, just quickly, and I'll I'll let you get back, if things had worked out differently the bezotype would have been the machine of the world instead of the Linotype. Yeah. It would have been, yeah. So that's, it's
3: pretty fascinating. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, full real name, Shankar Abaji Bizet. Nice. Well, he, co- <laughs> thank you. That one was an easy one. But the Bizet part, I'm not sure I'm still pronouncing that correctly. Well, he collaborated in the development of an orally administered absorbable solution of iodine supplement with Casey called Atomidine, which was later sold to the public and also, of course, later criticized for being basically no better than a supplemental dietary iodine tincture or iodine supplement. So there was some debate there that, not that it was harmful, but it was really no more effective than what they had out anyway. But apparently he was he was into it, and so was Casey. And also, apparently, Dr. Buzet also relied on psychic abilities in the formulation of medicines, which I have no doubt already discredits him With most of all the scientific community.
4: Well, the rules had now changed for those seeking a reading for legal protection for Casey and his group. Uh, A person seeking a reading must first become an association member and submit that the treatment was an experiment in psychic research. This offered a layer of protection, and this is interesting, this protocol, because this contributes to the case that we talked about at the end of part one, the uh, story about him getting in trouble that's coming up. We're going to explain in a minute. So the hospital compound was dedicated in a ceremony on October 11th, 1928, and the grounds held a lecture hall, workers' offices, 12-car garage with servants' quarters, library and vault for the readings, and a massive lawn and tennis court. The next day, they would receive the first patient, and soon the waiting list to get in would become months long. Now, even though the remedies generated by the readings were meant for specific individuals with specific ailments, some remedies worked consistently for most patients, and it was Casey's goal that those were to be tested repeatedly by the facility and perfected so that a compendium could be compiled that might be useful by the medical community at large. Morton Blumenthal and Dr. Mosley-Brown proceeded to plan the building of a university that would work together with the hospital, which they hoped would be considered equal in stature to other institutions of higher learning. The goal was for completion by September 22nd, 1930. However, in September through late October of 1929, as history buffs will know, the Great Wall Street Crash of 1929 happened, and that changed the lives of everyone as it sparked the Great Depression. You think times are tough now? Read up on that one. That was bad news. Mm. Blumenthal had taken over ownership of the hospital to control the expenses, but after just the first semester, he withdrew his support for the university, and on February 26, 1931, the Association of National Investigators was dissolved. Two days later, the Casey Hospital closed, and by the end of the year, Atlantic University ceased its activities. But on a good note, on July 7th of that year, the Association for Research and Enlightenment, the ARE, was incorporated. However, not too long after that, Edgar Casey was arrested, as we talked about at the end of part one of the series. And this was uh, kind of a tricky situation. They had been arrested for fortune telling. I want to read this section of Segru's book about this because it's it's pretty interesting. This is from page 304 of Segru's book in the Kindle edition, uh, There is a River. On November 7th, the family was packed and ready to leave for the beach. Two women, residents of the hotel, had for a week been trying to get a reading. All the time had been occupied. Gladys had given them an application blank. Remember how we talked about the application and how you had to fill that out? Mm -hmm. And told them to fill it out and send it to the association's office at the beach. The woman who wanted the reading, the other being her companion, said she needed it badly. Early in the afternoon, the association member who had the reading appointment canceled it. So that was an appointment that uh, would have prevented these two ladies from getting in. Gladys actually telephoned them in the hotel and told them they might have the time if they still wanted it. They came to the suite and the reading was given. And at that point, the Casey's were arrested for fortune telling. The ladies were police women. For Edgar, it seemed the end of the world. The road on which he had started with Lane 31 years before had come to the destination he had been afraid from the beginning it might reach. He was headed for jail. With Gertrude and Gladys, he blinked at the photographer's flashbulbs. The judge sealed the papers in the case and seized the plates of the photographs taken in court to prevent prejudgment by the newspapers. But as they stepped into the street, free on bail, the bulbs flashed again, and that night they saw themselves in the tabloids. Reporters haunted the lobby. They stayed in their rooms, listening to friends who tried to cheer them up. Outwardly, Edgar was calm. He even joked about the situation. Inwardly, he was inconsolable. From the beginning, the case was thin. The policewomen had no warrant, they had not been solicited for the reading, and one of them had signed an application blank. She was thus a member of the association when the reading was given. The blank had disappeared and the reading itself had been confiscated, even so there was little evidence for the charge preferred. But these facts did nothing to alleviate the misery and worry which settled on the defendants. So there's a lot more detail there. I'm going to skip down here to the actual court proceedings. Edgar testified that all money received for readings was paid to the association. You claim you are a psychic, Magistrate Irwin asked. No, sir, I make no claims whatsoever. May I tell my story? Yes, the magistrate said. I would like to hear it. For 31 years, I have been called or told that I was psychic. It first began as a child. I didn't know what it was. When many people who had asked me to do things for them asked for advice and counsel, After it had gone for years, it was investigated by individuals. And then the company was formed, the judge asked. This company was formed to study the work, Edgar said. And they pay you a salary? They pay me a salary. Do you go into a trance? I do not know. I am unconscious. You are unconscious. Unconscious. It has been investigated by some scientists. Some call it hypnotic influence. Some call it a trance. There was a cross examination, and then Magistrate Irwin, who had been watching Edgar closely, said, Step down. Put this on the record. After seeing the people's witness and the three defendants and their witnesses on the stand and observing their manner of testifying and after reading the exhibits in the case, I find as a fact that Mr. Casey and his co-defendants were not pretending to tell fortunes and that to hold these defendants guilty of a violation of Section 899 of the Code of Criminal Procedure, Subdivision 3, would be an interference with the belief, practice, or usage of an incorporated ecclesiastical governing body or the duly licensed teachers thereof and they are discharged. Gertrude came up to Edgar and said, what is an incorporated ecclesiastical governing body? Edgar said, I don't know, but it's wonderful. (laughs)
5: So
4: So as you can see, that's a brush with trouble there. That was an attempt by some overzealous officers to essentially entrap them in this fortune-telling charge, which again, like they said, it wasn't solicited. They weren't out pulling people in off the street and demanding money for information. And that was the importance of having that blank filled out, which, uh, you know, good for them for protecting themselves and being essentially ready for this to happen.
3: Yeah, I'm sure they were advised. And, And also, here's a little anecdote I wanted to talk about, about the times and how the country was now becoming aware of people that would raise suspicion like this. And this actually comes from, and this could be a whole show in and of itself here. Uh, this actually comes from a notes I took from the Great Courses Plus for an ad we did for them. And it's about the lecture series, The Real History of Secret Societies. Oh, yes. And a character that I came across that sounded really fascinating and also really scary. And, and again, this has happened around this time and it would it made the papers and you could see why people were like, well, what's he up to? He's not starting a cult, is he? Uh, Well, on October 6th, 1929, LAPD detective Lieutenant Frank Condifer found a box in this house that inside was the body of a young woman who had been dead for about five years. And she had been moved at least twice. She was kept on ice for 14 months. This is what the coroner found out. And she was embalmed with pickling spices and concealed in a hidden tomb under her parents' bedroom seven dogs, pet dogs were killed to keep her company. And her name was Willa Rhodes, who was 16 when she died. And LAPD found her out because they got a tip. Well, she was the daughter of William and Martha Rhodes, who finally broke down and told the cops what happened. And they insisted Martha wasn't really dead, and that she was the tree of life a celestial princess and the future queen awaiting resurrection. And those seven dogs, unfortunately, represented the seven notes of Gabriel's celestial trumpet, and they were part of this ritual that uh, would welcome her when she came back to life. Well, these folks followed a woman called May Otis Blackburn, and she had started something called The Divine Order of the Royal Arms of the Great Mm Eleven. Again, I I think I said in the end, that's a catchy title. kind of a mouthful, but... Sounds really official, like it's something, isn't it? Other people just called it the Blackburn Cult. And they were already under investigation. They'd built an oil man named Clifford Dabney out of $40,000, he claimed. She was going to write this book and use the funds for her deeds here. And the book was going to be called The Great Sixth Seal, or be about that. And it was dictated to her by the Archangel Gabriel. It revealed secrets of the universe Including the keys to resurrection and immortality, and even where to find more oil. So she was bad news, but she, weirdly, she set up in Southern California, Simi Valley, and she had a little colony for her followers called Harmony Hamlet. And it's not too far away from a Charles Manson hangout decades later. Spawn Ranch. Yeah. Spawn Ranch is in Simi Valley. Yeah. Uh, and what wait, was what, hers called? Uh, Harmony Hamlet. Harmony in Hamlet. In Southern California's Simi Valley. Huh. So this has all the earmarks, though, of, uh, of a cult. She's got her own secluded kind of thing. She's got her followers. There's some shady stories going around about her bilking stuff. The other one was that people seemed to disappear, that she had a conflict with. And I think a couple of ex-husbands mm. mysteriously vanished. So yeah, they may have been killing people. So you could see around this time, people were like, "Well, what's going on here? What's Casey doing? Is he is he starting a cult? Does he have followers? Are they doing anything weird? Are they, should we check this out? We should, we should investigate this guy." And the story that you just relayed that of him being arrested, like that's about the biggest brush with the law I believe that I'd ever come across with him. So he's he's nothing like that. But I just wanted to point that out in that. People were very cautious about what he was doing, especially if you're giving out medical advice and you're not a doctor and it's coming to you from the other side. Yeah, that's going to raise some uh, some attention there, but really nothing much happened to that after that. Uh, and he wanted to, to, to do good with his abilities here, but after that hospital closed, unfortunately, Casey took home the reading files that were archived there and during the Great Depression years, he, he really starts to focus more on the spiritual teachings. Those that knew him personally would ask him, how could they become more psychic like him? Now, when Casey was asked that question while in a session while he was under, the answer came back basically as, if you want to attain more psychic-like abilities, become more spiritual. That's the very general answer. That's what I'm saying. People, well, give me, in that case, give me step-by-step instructions. What do I do? What do I have to eat? Are there any tinctures I have to apply? Poultices? And no, you need to become more spiritual. Really, one's mission in life should not be to become more psychic, but really to become more spiritually aware, enlightened, and a more loving person towards one another. That's the universal message we often hear especially from the Space Brothers, uh, the, the alien folks that we would hear about in the encounters in the 1950s. Not that Casey had any connection to that, although he did seem to believe, or, or rather the intelligence speaking through him indicated that there were other beings in the universe besides humans, but that they were doing their own thing. They're on their own path. But I want to make that point clear, is that uh, if you believe Casey was receiving information from a source outside himself, it's more accurate to say that the source was the proponent of this information and not so much Casey himself, but as you'll hear, like Casey said this, Casey proposed that. like, Right. That's what people are saying. It's, it goes back to my whole slip up in, in part one, when I said he never
4: said the word entity and you, you promptly stepped in to save me by saying, well, he wasn't representing his <laughs> well, own voice. So maybe he didn't. It, it, <laughs> I, I guess it's all in how you look at it, but there's, as we'll find out here in a bit, the we that's coming through him isn't always the we. Sometimes it's an individual, and uh, I'll I'll get into that in in the uh, prophecy section. So
3: well, that's what that's my point here is that you look at the message, and and is the message harmful? And and it's not like hey, all worship and praise me, as Mayotis Blackburn would say, because she's amassing power. He's saying hey, love one another. That's that's your goal in life. Be a decent person. Don't be a jerk. And what better message is there than the golden rule? Treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. So, or be excellent to each other. Yes, Bill and Ted. Oh, so. <laughs> that's, yeah, exactly. yes, same thing. Yes, <laughs> but th- but that's the answer from the other side about like how do I attain some of these kinds of abilities? This intuition. It's like well, you first have to start thinking about this stuff. You got to be more spiritual. However, you may. Want to attain that, but that's the first step. So, what this really sparked was study groups that formed after this. But officially, though, by the end of the year, Atlantic University stops its activities. But the Association for Research and Enlightenment is still going very strong to this day. And after the closure of this institution for studying the subjects brought up by the readings, a less formal and more intimate arrangement was made for furthering research called study groups, as we mentioned before. The questions and answers in the readings, now more focused on metaphysical topics like synchronicities, for you Hellier fans, (laughs) coincidences that are just more than mere coincidences, ones that have meanings that are connected in strange ways collectively. Things like karma, reincarnation, topics like past lives and the Akashic records, developing one's intuition, soulmates, astrology, and dream interpretation, things like that that we're very familiar with today. And they were popular topics at the time. People were just really kind of getting into them, though. So, from a meeting on June 6, 1931, it was 61 attendees. It was decided then that the research should also continue with a more formal organization, and thus the Association for Research and Enlightenment was incorporated, as we'd also previously mentioned. Casey then purchased a house for his family, and he returned the Blumenthal house. So he gave that up, got his own house. Casey's eldest son, Hugh Lynn, suggested that his father continue on, but now with only two readings a day, as you know, he was getting older, and that a research library be built, another suggestion of his, where the study groups could gather. A monthly publication was also started that featured articles on health tips from the readings, stories about interesting cases Casey had treated, and articles concerning the readings and psychic phenomena and just general interest stuff. It's, and I've actually got a recent copy a couple of years ago. I, I need to uh, get back into that, but it's a really interesting publication if you like the kind of subjects we talk about on the show. Well, in June of 1932, the Association's first annual congress was held, where Hugh Lynn had arranged for lecturers to give talks on psychic phenomena and metaphysics, and Casey also gave public readings, witnessed by the attendees usually these are more private affairs. If you're the target of the reading, you can attend those in person, I believe. And then he was doing a lot more work through the mail. Sure. But this was on display so people could see it. So again, more openness where he was like, no, it's not that secret. You can see me lay down on the couch and and speak in this voice. Well, during these, careful notations of the process were made and then followed up by checking against the progress of the patients. They wanted to see how effective this was remotely. And the results and data were then compiled and published in a volume titled 100 Cases of Clairvoyance. But of course, as you can imagine, the study wasn't taken seriously by the bulk of the scientific community because the experiments weren't conducted under laboratory test conditions. Yeah, so and that's a
4: repeated out. criticism of the, uh, there's all this documentation, but it's not done in a way that conforms to a standard that the scientific community feels like is verifiable.
3: Exactly. And my feeling is also y- you'd have to do it in a lab, you'd have to do it a thousand times over and over again. And, and that's the way the scientific method goes. You, It has to be repeatable and under not only just every circumstance, but of course under supervision and under strict scientific controls, which I agree with, I I understand, and, and more of their experimentations were seen as anecdotal by the skeptics. Well, then in 1940 through 1941, the association members raised funds for the construction of a library and a vault for the readings, and this was built on as an addition to the Casey Home. As attending members were excited to go back to their locations to form their own study groups, membership in the association grew to around 500 to 600 members. Uh, year by year, they'd experienced some turnover. Maybe half of those folks would go away. Some would come back. But this membership included people from a wide range of faiths. For example, members came from Protestant and Catholic churches, the Orthodox denominations, Asian religions, theosophy, and general spiritualism, to name a few. The intelligence from the readings espoused that there is one infinite and universal truth and that each faith is a part of this one truth. Therefore, the ARE was designed to be inclusive and not cause a rift between any beliefs. And Casey believed that if this study made you a better member of your church, then it was a positive thing. But it's a negative if it takes you away from your faith. Selling a
2: little or a lot
1: And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
4: Hi, this is Susan O'Rell from North Carolina, and you are listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Well, then the attack on Pearl Harbor happens on December 7th, 1941, a date we all know, and that led to the United States entering into World War II. Both of Casey's sons joined the armed forces. Hugh Lynn Casey married his wife, Sally, that year, and Edgar Evans Casey married Catherine Bain in 1942. On October 7th of forty-two, Hugh Lynn and Sally have a son, Charles Thomas Casey. The reading said that Charles was the reincarnation of Thomas Jefferson Casey. That would be Edgar's grandfather that he had seen die when he was a child in that horseback riding accident, and he would communicate with in
3: his childhood, and here's what I believe to be a principal working of reincarnation—the mechanics of it—that came out in the readings. And I came across this a long time ago, so apologies if this isn't exactly accurate as I know it. But I, I'd like to repeat it to, to people. It's as kind of a fun discussion point here. But but the readings say that relatives and maybe some friends you have around you now have been and will be reincarnated from family and friends from your past lives. And they can change roles, meaning in a past life, your child may have been your parent and vice versa. Your aunt may have been your best friend, and your best friend now may have been your cousin in a past life, you know, that sort of thing. So that's kind of a nice and comforting thought, don't you think? That reminds me of a
4: movie that I know we've mentioned before, a great movie called Dead Again. No spoilers. Oh, <laughs> Got to check that out. <laughs> that's,
3: I just recently saw that for the first time oh, and I, so I, good. I, since it came out, I think. Yeah. yeah
4: and then uh, I also I want to call back to something that I've mentioned before on an episode we did a while back called The Psychic, the Birds, and Ollie the Crime-Fighting Dog. And I talked about my experience with a psychic at a party at John Cryer's house, no less. It was a weird scenario. But anyway, I'm at, at this party. And that, and that psychic told me that one of my um, very, very close friends, somebody that Forrest knows as well, uh, that he and I had fought together in the Civil War and actually had property next to each other after the war because we both survived it. Uh, I thought it was interesting. She had no idea who this guy was. I didn't bring him up, but she uh, came up with his name and everything. So it's Yeah, that
3: was, uh, that was the first time I think I saw you. Pretty shot. freaked out?
4: Yeah, I was, I was pretty freaked out by that reading. I will say that. And, and that guy, by the way, that guy is Jerry, who was the gentleman from our episode entitled uh, What's Gotten Into You. He was the one that when he was a kid, the bug got in his ear. Yes. <laughs> he also made a guest appearance on our Christmas special, so.
3: That's right. Well, well, hopefully that incident, the, the bug incident, won't happen to him in an upcoming life. No. Hopefully that wasn't a,
4: who knows? Maybe the bug was somebody that could have been his mother or his father reincarnated.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that's my next point here. Speaking of being bugged and fighting with somebody <laughs> in that sense, I mean, it is kind of a nice, comforting thought that your loved ones will always be around you. Unless, of course, you don't like them. (laughs) Then you may never get rid of them. Yeah. They're just going to keep coming back. So maybe that's the point, is that you're meant to finally get along with them somehow. We're all, like, we're all supposed to get along with each other on this planet. Well, there's another side note that it reminded me of that I read in the Facebook group where people were discussing strange and unsettling things their kids had said to them. Oh yeah. And I've seen threads a, about that
4: before on Reddit
1: and stuff. Well, this is it's, our very own weird. This is
3: people uh, we know through Facebook, uh, dear listeners who are yeah. very active in the group. And and I apologize. Cause I don't remember the names. I, I was just kind of skimming on it. And I was like, Whoa, I love that. That little anecdote that was here. And then of that just blew up. Uh, yeah, likes to lurk
4: is- In the Facebook group people.
3: No, I I love to exchange, but if that happens, then Scott will say, hey, where is uh, 75% of the outline you were supposed to do last night? (laughs) yeah, I was going to do that, but I I instead got uh, started chatting with people on Facebook. So I have to watch it. That's just my own nature. Uh, Otherwise, uh, major things don't get done here. But the theme of this thread was weird stuff that your kids had said to you or or strange things that kind of made you go, hmm. And one of them was... Uh, Something like, Mommy, do you remember when I was your aunt? Oh, Oh, wow. (laughs) That's (laughs) a good one. No, and it's a Facebook listener whose name we know very well. I just, I'm blanking on it right now and I apologize. But that was kind of shocking, but also comforting, but also your child was telling you what to do. (laughs) And and you were, you're probably being a jerk to them or a brat when you were growing up and now you're getting it or whatever it is. It's just these roles switch around. So that's one of the principles of reincarnation is that we're, The people you deal with now, or maybe they pass through your life, had done that before in previous lives. You're all kind of mixed up in this together. That's the theme here. And on the other hand, maybe it's just the vivid imagination of a child, but pretty freaky, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Scott. Has your son or any child at all said something very odd to you like that. You know, this is going
4: to be a really flat story. I remember that he did and I feel like I said this on the show too or at least told you about it. He said something strange to me when he was much younger which you, you know, he's 10 now when we started the show he was 5. It, but I can't remember what it was now, but I remember thinking, "Well, that's odd." But it was just one thing and it wasn't, you know, really earth-shattering, but it was Right. Right. It was odd. Listen to uh this quote from page 350 of There is a River, Thomas Segru's book on, I guess, an interpretation of what Casey had said about incarnation. Mm -hmm. The soul may occupy the body as early as six months before birth or as late as a month after birth, though in the latter case, it's been hovering over the body since birth, deciding whether or not to occupy it. Once the decision is made and the occupation completed, the veil drops between the new personality and the soul, and the earthly
3: record of the child begins. Wow. Hmm. Uh, boy, that also just reminded me of, a, I, I've never seen the show, uh, it was celebrity ghost stories, uh-huh. celebrities come on and, 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 talk about it. And we, Scott and I were just, before we started recording this little section here, where was talking about the case of Fred Dreyer, who was the star of the cop TV show Hunter. Yes. Uh, a couple of decades ago. And there was another one, again, I can't remember the name of the, um, of the actor who was on there, but she was talking about seeing an apparition of a, of a little boy in their house. And what it turned out to be was an image of her yet-to-be toddler son oh. and was making an appearance. And and man, I yeah, it was kind of on in the background. I, I didn't get to watch the show fully and, and digest it as I usually do. But I'd heard that type of story before about mothers specifically seeing a vision of the child that is yet to come in. And it's kind of like she felt anyway, the actor who was uh, talking about her story on the show was that. It was like the child was waiting in the wings, scoping the family out before it arrived. Mm. That's the gut feeling that she got. So interesting. again, none of this is provable. It could all be overactive imaginations or pregnancy cravings, whatever you want to call it. But interesting that it ties in with this. Uh, but speaking of, yeah, it, there is a river. Uh, in March of 1943, the book we've been mostly pulling from, as we've been saying over and over and over again, There Is a River by Thomas Segrouw, was published in a first edition. And again, this would be the only biography written while Casey was alive and taken from interviewing the family directly as Thomas Segrou lived with them, I believe, while he was writing this book. In recovery
4: for his uh, treatment of his arthritic condition by Casey. So we talked about him earlier. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So it was, and I think that's why it's looked to as The real main one if you want to know the life story very well and just the facts because it's taken from the guy who was there and really embedded an embedded journalist with the family because of the popularity of the book though and a prominent profile article titled miracle man of virginia beach being printed in a widely known magazine at the time called coronet Casey now received national attention once again when the activities of the ARE were previously going on quietly. They weren't making a lot of waves. They weren't trying to gain a lot of publicity for what they were doing. They just wanted to keep doing what they were doing. And those that were interested in what they were doing and wanted to participate would come to them. So they weren't making a big splash. They weren't trying to gain a ton of members, I think even Hugh Lynn narrowed down the mailing lists of uh, those who are receiving the publications to only those who were really active and showing genuine interest in it. But what this did, though, with the book coming out and this big time article was that now the letters and pleas for help were flooding in. Extra staff had to be hired and Gertrude had to bring home trunk loads of mail in her car from the post office because they wouldn't even deliver all that much mail to their house anymore. So that gives you an idea of how many letters were coming in. And Edgar Casey being who he was, he wanted to help everyone. And he was now doing four to six readings per
4: day. Yeah, so many families had loved ones that went missing in action during World War II and sought answers from Casey as to what happened to them. And he felt like he couldn't let them down. So he increased his readings to eight per day, to try and keep up. This also took an incredible strain on Casey's health. As he said, the readings were, uh, as you can imagine, very emotionally draining. To channel that pain and misery and the process would leave him exhausted. The voice from the readings told Casey directly that he was taking on too much and that if he didn't limit his sessions to just two per day, the extra workload would eventually kill him. He gave 1,345 readings in the one-year period between June of 1943 to June of 1944, and by August of that year, he had completely collapsed from exhaustion. A reading was conducted to ask what he should do next, and the voice said that he should rest until he recuperated or he died. Edgar and Gertrude then decided to vacation in the mountains of West Virginia to convalesce. On September 17th of 1944, he gave his last reading to himself, and in that same month, he suffered a stroke. Edgar Casey passed away on January 3rd, 1945, at the age of 67. He would be buried in Riverside Cemetery in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Three months later, his wife Gertrude Evans Casey would pass away on Easter Sunday at the age of 65. And what's interesting is
3: he predicted the day of his death which we're going to talk about yeah. when we come to the prophecies. Yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, the Association for Research and Enlightenment would carry on the work of cataloging and cross-referencing the entire collection of 14,306 files of readings that Casey had given in his lifetime from a period of March 31st 1901 to September 17th 1944. And they're all available online in the members section of the website, as we said at the beginning of uh, part one. And they're also at the ARE Library in Virginia Beach. And just a small side note here as we conclude this section, I had read that as some research efforts have compiled and cross-referenced readings, they turn into narratives or they form narratives, uh, if you put them all together, about certain topics such as the story of Atlantis with the readings being given out of order. So what I mean here is that, as I described in parts uh, one and two previously, that he would give a remedy to somebody and say, oh, by the way, you also had this problem when you were this person in a past life and would name it. And that's, uh, as I said, with Al Lammers, those questions started to be more prevalent and also later in life when they decided to focus more on the metaphysical aspects people would say like what do you mean by past life when i was this scribe in ancient egypt and the voice would go on to explain what that person did and what their role was and and that's an aspect of karma perhaps where things you were doing in past lives have come back to you good and bad and so as he mentioned this more questions were asked about things like atlantis and and as i said before the story of jesus and all these different narratives, and they form narratives. But my point here is that he didn't just sit down in one long session for three hours and tell the whole story of Atlantis beginning to end. It was coming out in snippets and various readings, and sometimes disjointed. So when the researchers went back at the ARE and they put this all together and put them in context in this narrative, I had read, and I'm not sure this is true, we didn't follow up on this, but none of the readings conflicted with other readings given, meaning They didn't contradict other readings. It's all flowed into one narrative once you stuck them all together. Again, I had read that years ago, years and years ago, so I don't know if that's actually true, if that's just purported, and researchers have found out that that's not actually the case, but that's what I I remember reading that very specifically and being impressed with that shall we say, and that if he was doling out bits of a story, that's really fantastical, of course, and most people uh, would think his stories on the beginnings of the Earth and Atlantis and all these other kinds of things, subjects in the metaphysical realm, are really just products of an overactive imagination. Then he did a really good job memorizing this entire story and doling it out in little bits that he knew later on would be put together into a narrative. So yeah, just very strange if that is true because it was doled out in a nonlinear fashion. So again, if it was true, it'd be quite a feat for just somebody with a good sense of science fiction.
4: Well, we've done a lot of talking about Casey and what he does in these readings and the medical advice and uh, that angle on things. It turns out that's not the only thing he was known for. A lot of you that are already familiar with him will be probably wondering why we haven't brought up the prophecies yet. Well, here's the fun part.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, the poultices and and packs and, you know, high compresses or Tinctures, fun all,
4: but... poultices.
3: Uh, yeah. Salves. We didn't get to say salve. <laughs> you can even there, make a salve. I believe there are salves involved. Yes. Uh, uh, minerals and uh, essential oils, all that kind of good stuff. But here's the thing that people really gets them going. Yes. And it either you're on board with it and you find it fascinating. Like with me, I'm just, I, I just think it's fascinating. Well, it's interesting. And and when it comes to prophecies, you have all these infamous
4: folks from throughout time. I mean, the first person that comes to mind is Nostradamus. Mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was younger, there was a series on TV of specials about Nostradamus, and they were so scary because it was all about the end of the world and nuclear holocaust. Yeah. Everyone was convinced when there was this really serious looming threat of the Cold War turning into World War III and a nuclear holocaust Everyone was convinced that Nostradamus called it and it was right around the corner and we were all going to die. I remember having... Intense anxiety about that when I was in high school in the late eighties. Yeah, yeah. So.
3: You remember the uh, the In Search of episode on him with boy, yes. well, you putting Leonard Nimoy on that man? It just uh oh, just it's you. Creepy stuff. Yeah, and then up uh, th- the Prince in the blue thing. turban.
4: Yes, the Prince and the blue. Oh, so much stuff about that. We should probably do a show on Nostradamus eventually. I'm going to save that for year six though. This is, okay. Uh, <laughs> this is your oh, this is year six. Let's save it for Are we year counting seven them like that. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Right. We're in year All five, right. six now, right? Yeah, we're season five. Years old. five. Yeah. Anywho, let's get back to the prophecies. Uh, What is a prophecy? The prophecy, this is a definition online, foretelling or prediction of what is to come, something that is declared by a prophet, especially a divinely inspired utterance or revelation. So let's talk about Edgar Cayce's
3: predictions about the future. Well, again, to keep this in mind... The intelligence coming through him yes. are making these predictions. That's right. <laughs> it's They're like, coming. I, I, he's asleep. Again, he doesn't even remember yeah. it. Yeah. Like for, no, it, it's just, I'm sorry. I just, it's one of my favorite uh, New Yorker cartoons where there's, there's a panel of a guy, like an older boss guy, and he's got this big frown on his face and then a younger uh, employee and he's got a hand puppet. Yeah. And the captain just says, surely you can't hold me responsible for what others might say. <laughs> I, I didn't insult you. The puppet did. The puppet did it. <laughs> Yeah, so yes. you could say you could say in this case that, uh, yeah, it's coming through him, or it's Casey's genius sci-fi brain that's coming up with all this uh, Isaac Asimov stuff or, or this dystopian future kind of stuff, but really it's coming through him. So just keep that in mind as we hear this stuff, but it's really, uh, like I said, it, it gets people going or it gets his skeptics going, either that like, well, there you go, uh, none of this stuff came true, or some did, or you have to interpret it, but... It, uh, it makes an impact on people. And that's what people really want to know. They want to know the future. Well, let's drill down on some of these predictions. Uh, he made a lot
4: of them over the years, and some of them came to pass, some didn't. We actually found a fascinating list of them on a website we've cited in the past because it's primarily dedicated to near-death experiences, and it is in fact called neardeath.com. <laughs> has, oh, yeah. uh, there's a hyphen between near and death there if you want to go check it out, neardeath.com. And the webmaster is Kevin Williams. We have a link to it in our show notes. Uh, the readings that are on Kevin's website, though, or Mr. Williams' website, are actually from the Association for Research and Enlightenment, whom we've also been in touch with about our coverage of Mr. Casey, and let them know that we were going to be using some material from their website, and they very graciously agreed to let us use that. So we want to give a, a shout-out of thanks to them for sharing the audio with us that you heard earlier in the show, and also the the text of some of these readings, which you're going to find fascinating.
3: One other thing I want to say before we get started here is that uh, unlike the medical stuff, he didn't really go on about this. Uh, I, I know from the few readings that I've done on on the readings, it wasn't mentioned unless it was uh, part of the entity's past life. Like, oh by the way, you know, you also suffered from this when you were a monk in this age and in a past life, and you were doing this. Or in Casey's own case, uh, he was a scribe in uh, the ancient Egyptian days. I think that's correct. That's from a long time ago when I was reading this stuff. And so he would mention these other things that were going on. And it wasn't until later, though, when people started getting off uh, the medical questions, as we just told you about in his life narrative here, that they were starting to ask like, oh, I guess you can ask other stuff. Well, what's, uh, where are their limits? So what are the secrets of the universe? What's my life purpose? How does this work? How does that work? What happened back then? And stuff like uh, in really mystical, esoteric subjects. And for years, they, people had no idea that he could also give you answers through him, about these other subjects. So that's what it is now. You you wonder like, why wasn't that question number two? Like, thanks for curing me. By the way, how are the pyramids built? Yeah. People didn't think to ask that until uh, really until like Al Lammers came around and then it turned really metaphysical. That's why we wanted to make sure we included him in the narrative.
4: All right. So we're going to talk about some of these prophecies now. This is a combination of our own thoughts on the prophecies and also some of the observations that Mr. Williams made about them on NearDeath.com. And these sources, just to remind everybody, they're all very favorable to Mr. Casey, just to understand Mm -hmm. uh, where we're at with confirmation bias. On the page that Mr. Williams created, there is a very comprehensive list of the prophecies that Casey made and whether or not they've come to pass. Now, according to that list, which again comes from the Association for Research and Enlightenment, Mr. Casey made at least 22 predictions that seemingly came true. I've cherry picked a few of them because we don't have all night.
6: <laughs> we already <laughs> made this show shit.
4: long enough, but uh, yeah. uh, these ones stood out to me. One of them was the stock market crash of 1929. In the mid-20s, he did over 700 readings on business and the stock market. And in February of 1925, he said the following in reading 2723-1. By the way, I'll be giving you the numbers for these readings in case we ever transcribe this episode to make it easy for you to track them. And it's my understanding that the first number corresponds to the person that the reading was given to, and the second number corresponds to the sequence of the reading for them. So this would have Ah. been person number 2723 that he had done a reading for and their first reading. Here's that reading now. Hence, in the present sphere, we find these conditions in the urge of the individuality of the entity. One that within the present sphere will have great amount of monies to care for. In the adverse forces that will come then in 1929, care should be taken, lest this, without the more discretion in small things, be taken from the entity. That was four years before the
3: crash. And it's so what a, it's saying is you watch out for your money here. You're going to have a good deal of money. Yeah. Make sure you protect that money because something's coming in 29. Right. And these readings, by
4: the way, were for clients that were asking about investments. Here, two years later, he warns of it again. This is reading 900-425. We may expect a considerable break and bear market, See, this issue being between those of the reserves of nations and of individuals and will cause, unless another of the more stable banking conditions come to the relief, a great disturbance in financial circles. This warning has been given, See question mark. Mm Mm-hmm. I got hung up on a great disturbance in financial circles. It immediately took me to a great disturbance in the force. I was wondering if George Lucas was aping this reading for dialogue. But he's talking about the crash again. And this was in uh, 1927, two years before the crash. The other thing that's really fascinating to me about this one, Forrest, is that he says unless in this, which implies the future is not set in stone, right?
3: Well, uh, that will lead to, uh, I guess there is a whole critiquing section here, but uh, it's something, uh, in case I forget, I like to mention these things because I didn't forget, and I hear the episode like, oh, I forgot to mention that. Not that anybody cares. (laughs) But the idea is that uh, one of the skeptics here, Joe Nickel, uh, which we, uh, beloved Joe Nickel, which we like to get this skeptical side from, would say that in, in some of these things that he's mentioning, he seems uncertain. The language is uncertain. Like, it may be, or perhaps... And that's a point of criticism in that you're not sure, like, come on, you're omniscient. Let's nail this monkey business down 100%. Why are you uncertain? Why are you hesitant about perhaps it's this or maybe this will happen? And I could see that as a point where, well, he's hedging his bets. He doesn't want to, uh, that way, if it doesn't happen, he said, well, I said, maybe, you know, or I said, perhaps this would happen, but I just don't think the future works like that as we're going to see. No,
4: I think that's a very valid point. And I think you're onto something there when you are making clear that the skeptical viewpoint- of the K C readings is well, if this doesn't fit into this box of precision, then it, we must throw it all out. Uh, but you know, but the flip side of that is, you do have to recognize when you are dealing with someone who is behaving fraudulently. But that comes back around to what portion of the data they're giving you is accurate. I mean, this is a pretty hard prediction of a stock oh. market
3: crash. Ah, hold on one second, uh, I misspoke. That was actually magician James Randi that would say that Casey was fond of expressions like, I feel that, and perhaps, and all these qualifying words, so he didn't have to make a positive declaration about anything. And we'll tackle what Joe Nickel had to say in our, in our section dedicated for that, but I, I just want to point that out. Like, no, that was James Randi who said, well, he's giving himself some wiggle room. Yes, that's the amazing Randi, who yes. is a prominent skeptic himself and a magician.
4: Well, that wasn't the only thing that Casey predicted. He also predicted the rise and fall of Hitler. This is a particularly controversial reading when it comes to Casey because he seemed to suggest that even Hitler could be swayed towards good if he could turn away from self aggrandizement and imperialism. Now, this information that we're about to share was imparted to one of those study groups that Forrest mentioned started up after the university shut down. This was a group of folks that worked together to understand Casey's readings and, as we said earlier, become more psychic. Now, the first one of these groups was formed in 1931. We have a description to a link of that on the website. Here is a description of the study groups from the arecatalog.com website, which we have a link to. In 1931, Edgar Cayce agreed to help a group of people grow spiritually and become more psychic with one condition. They would have to live the precepts. It took the group 11 years to apply and compile the 24 lessons that became A Search for God, Books 1 and 2. This material has helped individuals and groups around the world to discover a closer attunement to God. So, that's a book that you can actually buy based on these experiences. And it was to one of these groups that this information came through about Hitler. I actually did not confirm whether or not it was this exact group or not. It may have been. But uh, here we're citing a book entitled Edgar Casey: An American Prophet. Now, this was written by Sidney D. Kirkpatrick, who we haven't mentioned yet in the series. It's a critically acclaimed account of Casey from a more modern and thoroughly researched angle. Without getting too far into the weeds and all the opinions around that, there's something else about this particular reading that was bizarre, in chapter 45 of his book, Kirkpatrick details how Casey suggested that global catastrophic events might be triggered by a, quote, young king, end quote, and that man would be Hitler from the country of Germany. Listen to this excerpt from that chapter of Kirkpatrick's book, An American Prophet. In this particular reading, which the reference number for is 3976 13, this is an infamous reading about Hitler. There's a lot of interesting information in this one. One of the things that Casey talks about is the destruction of the planet. There's a lot of bad things going on. It's it's catastrophic kind of material where the earth is going to be broken up. Japan is going to quote go into the sea. There's a lot of predictions made for global geographic catastrophes, although it's not really specified how those will come to be. Here's a particular quote from that reading that I thought was interesting. "'Through those that in the inmost recesses of themselves awaken to the spiritual truths that are to be given, and those that have acted in the capacity of teachers among men, the rottenness of those that have ministered in places will be brought to light, and turmoils and strifes shall enter.'" Armageddon is at hand. So a particular, those last four words are particularly frightening. Uh, Armageddon is at hand. That's not something you want to hear from a guy hmm. predicting the future, or that you believe can predict the future. What's interesting about this particular passage is that in this reading, and I don't know if it's for the first time, I can't say that categorically, but the voice specified itself as an I instead of a we which is what it usually was. Mm -hmm. It was always the we, which we've talked about in part one and part two. But in this case, it was an I. And in this case, it revealed its identity to the people listening. Here's a further quote from the reading. The weakling, the unsteady, must enter into the crucible and become as not, even as he, that they may know the way. I, Halaliel, have spoken." And going back to Kirkpatrick's book here that we cited a few minutes ago, this is his assessment of that. Kirkpatrick's book says about this, Halaliel suggested the mechanism that might trigger catastrophic events and bring material suffering on a troubled people. Halaliel said, quote, the young king will soon reign, end quote. The nation that would produce the young king was identified along with his name. The country was Germany. The king was Hitler. Kirkpatrick goes on to say, Much has been said and written about the prophecies offered in this reading and about how many of these events actually came to pass. The shattering earth changes would not manifest themselves, and yet the reading was entirely accurate regarding Hitler's reign. Despite the major attention that has been paid this and Casey's other prophetic readings, an important point has often been lost the events foretold were ones that could potentially occur given the state of world affairs in January of 1934 when the reading was given. In trance, as in a waking state, Casey repeatedly said that even the Lord of Lords could not accurately predict future events because man's will altered and defined the future. So here again, we come back uh, to that unless thing that I mentioned earlier that stuck out to me in the prior reading. Unless another of the more stable banking conditions comes to the relief Man's will alters and defines the future. Casey is reporting on a possible future. Is it the most likely one at the time of the reading? Is it meant to be a warning? Why, in the case of this particular reading, was it in the voice of this one individual, Halaliel? Halaliel, according to what we could find, is the archangel known as the Lord of Karma. Again, from Kirkpatrick's book, The overriding message in these readings was that the collective will of mankind and the extent of brotherly love in the world would determine whether or not there would be war. Back in 1933, when Adolf Hitler was Chancellor of Germany, before he had become Der Fuhrer, Casey gave perhaps his most controversial readings on this subject, suggesting that even Hitler had the potential to be a force for positive change in Europe if his personal will could be turned toward the brotherhood of man. I, By the way, I cannot get over it, it and I'm not making light of this. I'm. Mm-hmm. I'm there's a lot of parallels in this storyline and Darth Vader's storyline. I don't know what the. You know what's. <laughs> what do you on. think
6: they? You got... can turn him
4: from
3: the dark side. Yeah, exactly. So I mean. Well, but no, it's the classic story. That's what I'm saying is that we all have a choice to use your powers for good or evil. That's why it's such a trope now of seeing somebody who's powerful that must make a decision, either have earthly powers and do ill amongst your fellow men, or use those powers and your will for, for good things, which maybe not are as fun in an earthly sense. Yeah. But they're for the benefit of humankind. Going back
4: to Kirkpatrick, he points out that from the outset, the source tempered every positive statement about Hitler with qualifying clauses such as, quote, if imperialism does not enter in. By January 1934, Casey stated that, indeed, imperialism is entering. And in 1938, 18 months before war had officially broken out, and just as Germany annexed Austria, the source became vitriolic on the subject, referring to Germany as a, quote, smear upon its forces for its dominance over its brother, a leech upon the universe for its own sustenance, end quote. In 1939, three weeks after Hitler invaded Poland, When asked about Hitler's future, the source answered succinctly, death. So here we got this implication in this particular reading that if all of mankind works together and prays, they can change the outcome of the Hitler future, and that maybe the warning was coming because it seemed unlikely that that was going to happen. Here we have the classic omen, a message about mending ways before it's too late, and about the power of brotherhood and the collective will and prayer. It's all super fascinating and the intensity of those readings are also interesting to me anyway. Well, that wasn't the limit of the stuff that Casey predicted either. He also predicted the beginning and the end of World War II. He predicted the beginning on October 7th of 1935, believe it or not. And in this particular reading, which is reading 416-7, he went on to talk about how the entire world would come to war. And of course, he mentioned the Nazis. He then predicted the end of World War II on August 30th of 1941. Here's a quote from Kirkpatrick's book on that. Casey gave another decisively clear prediction of the end of World War II, quote, "...for through the efforts of the entity much may be accomplished when in 45 to 46 peace again rules in the earth. Much is to be taken into consideration." Keep ahead in knowing that justice and mercy are the basic principles in dealing with one another, in dealings with groups, in dealings with states and nations, for these are right in the Lord. So that was a full four years before the war ended, and where he predicted it would be between 45 and 46, and it actually ended in September of 1945. He also said that it would take, in another reading, I think two years for things to return to a state of normalcy, which is a pretty accurate
3: prediction of what happened. Well, you know, people are going to complain that he didn't nail the exact day. Yeah. V, E, Victory in Europe Day and Victory in Japan Day, both separately at the hour. But it's still not bad for a civilian with no military secret knowledge. Yeah. I mean, this is years ahead. So that's that's
4: a hard thing to call, I would think. How, how many years this is going to take? I suppose you could say this was all luck, uh, or maybe these readings weren't done in controlled scientific conditions, so how can we know how anecdotal they are? But I just don't get the feeling that they went to all this trouble to make up what was being said in every single one of these over 10,000 readings so summarizing a few of these other prophecies that came true he also predicted the establishment of the United Nations, India's independence from Britain and the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union those are all just throwaway ones you, if you want to read them you can find them it's pretty <laughs> fascinating he additionally he made a technological prediction of the invention of infrared for night vision. Which is pretty amazing. I mean, he specified rays of light, red rays of light, talking about how it could be used. And this was another one of those readings that at the end it has C question mark. He's like, he's like raised to an nth degree in its brilliancy or refractory effect. C. And I feel like it's a James Cagney impression. <laughs> I'm not sure who was sending that information through, but that's that's reading 137-38. He gave that reading in 1925 about the infrared. Uh, infrared radiation had been discovered in 1800 by the astronomer Sir William Herschel, but there was no practical use of it until the Germans had a primitive night vision scope called the zielgerat ZB-1229 Vampire or Vampire. That was in active combat use in 1945. Still, that was 20 years after this particular reading. Another one of his more famous predictions was the death of two US presidents. In this particular reading, he said, Ye are to have a division in thine own land before there is the second of the presidents that next will not live through his office, a mob rule. That was from reading 3976 2 in 1939. FDR died in office six years later, and then JFK was assassinated 18 years after that. The rest of that reading detailed what could easily be interpreted as the social upheaval of the 60s, centered around Vietnam and the discord between the peace movement and capitalism and the military-industrial complex. So it's pretty fascinating. He's calling a lot of shots. A lot of things are happening. I... When I look back on how much history I've lived through, talk about feeling old, I can't believe that I've lived to see two impeachments. That's pretty crazy. I feel like that's, it seems like that should be a once in a lifetime event. Of course, there's people uh, working on the current impeachment of President Trump that it's their third impeachment. So that says you've been in office a pretty long time, I guess, but-
3: Wait, you weren't alive during, uh, let's see, there's Nixon. What was the first one?
4: uh, Johnson. No, I wasn't alive. What do you think? I'm a thousand years old? It was- uh, (laughs) (laughs) let's see i think it was andrew johnson let me see yes let me look it up right now since you put me on the spot with that well you should know that if you're going to make a statement like that yes no yes impeached i was i am
3: right Uh, right. andrew johnson was impeached yes so
4: that was uh 1868 so
3: no forced i was born 101 years after that thank you right this would be the third formal impeachment process here the process of impeachment Against Richard Nixon started, but he resigned before it was formally completed.
0: That's right. correct?
4: That's correct, because the Supreme Court had ordered him to release the tapes, I think, and 15 Republican senators said... Uh, we're going to vote you out. And he was like, okay, I'll leave. Yeah. So that technically it did start, but it wasn't officially, he wasn't officially impeached. So there's really only three impeachments. Yeah. That's what I remember as a kid. So yeah, I've lived through three, I guess. I, three or one <laughs> almost and two for reals. There you uh, go. But definitely was not around for Andrew Johnson in 1868,
3: at least not in this body as Edgar Casey. Well, that's another <laughs> point I was going to make. You may have. Yeah. Maybe I was. I don't remember it though. As a Southern farmer coming back from- uh, Yeah, that's right. Civil war veteran. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Whatever you were back then. Whatever you may I have. have, Yeah.
4: So there's one other prophecy that Casey made that we definitely want to touch on. And that was the fact that he said that Atlantis would be found or would be discovered again.
3: Oh yes. Atlantis. Well, that was one of the the first books I read on him and, and probably the most complete one. I'd, there's a ton of books out there about yeah. all of his readings and people writing about his life and his impact. And I believe that was maybe the last one I read cover to cover, and it was just a, a mind-blowing story. It's a great narrative, no matter how you take it or what you want to believe about it. As I have said, if he totally just made it all up, it's great science fiction, I thought. But his story of Atlantis is one of the major points that critics will use against him saying, like, this is crazy, fantastical stuff. What are you, what are you talking about here? This is silly. But if you look at some of the ideas that come up in it, They are ideas and technologies that we are verging on today that he was thinking about, or maybe he gleaned it anecdotally from sci-fi. He was reading, he was a voracious reader, and people will say, well, there you go, he got those ideas uh, from there. But if you look at some of the technological ideas that come up in it, they're not all that crazy, but it's crazy for back then, and... We're going to talk about that in the criticism section here. We have yet to get to. Uh, Yes, it's right around the corner. Ah.
4: Um, Just a couple more prophecies I wanted to mention. One of the biggest ones was that he predicted the day of his own death. Uh, and this is information I found on Kevin Williams' webpage that we mentioned earlier where there was that fantastic list of the prophecies, which ones have come true and which haven't. And uh, Kevin, thank you again for permission to cite and use material from your website along with the Edgar Casey Foundation that gave us permission to use the readings. But this is this is pretty fascinating here because near the end of Casey's life, he was ailing from pulmonary edema. And in this disease, fluid accumulates in the lungs. He was home and sick, and apparently he had told some folks who had come to visit him quote, it is all arranged. I am to be healed on Friday, the 5th of January, end quote. Then on January 1st, 1945, he announced that he would be buried in four days. He died on the 3rd. His funeral was on the 5th. Williams goes on to point out that around 20 years prior to that, Casey had had a dream that he told folks about where he could see himself immersed in a tub of hot water, that is exactly what death from pulmonary edema
3: feels like. So it's it's almost like he had a vision about his own future. Yeah. Point of clarification here, though, when you say, or when he said, it is all arranged, Yes. as a quote, I am to be healed. Yes. So people are not confused there. He's saying that I am going to be relieved of this human disease that I'm suffering from now. Yes. Right? Is that how you take it? And that yeah, he says, exactly. I am going to be healed meaning i'm going to be whisked away to the spirit world where i won't have to suffer from this anymore yeah i don't have to worry about this body anymore and wh- and, wh- and what's wrong with it okay so i want to clarify that yeah no it's a good, yeah, it's a good because yeah. people are going to say like well he wasn't healed he died right on the 5th but that's what he meant by i will be healed from this
4: yeah and that's probably why he followed it up with a few days later I'll be buried. Yes. Because obviously, (laughs) you don't get healed and then buried, at least not in our current society. So, oh, well, back then, remember the, uh, you had a little bell to ring. Yes, saved by the bell.
3: Wait a minute, I was healed. I'm still alive.
4: uh, Dig me up, please. Yeah. Um, I'm feeling much better. But, uh, (laughs) P.S., by the way, last thing we should touch on, he also said there's an economic bottom coming in 2032. Mm. So I would say invest or divest accordingly. Those folks he told about the 1929 crash ignored him and they lost everything. Yeah. So always diversify your portfolio holdings. Yes. He, well, he predicted a cycle, and there's I'm sure there's all kinds of business charts and ways to look at this anyway, even irrespective of psychic abilities. But he saw a cycle that essentially played out every 25 years, and 2032 is the next round on that. So it's
3: interesting. Yeah, things are cyclical always, I believe, in a lot of fields. And even with this last crash that we experienced in uh, 2008 to 2010, that last market downturn, and a lot of people lost their stuff. I sensed a lot of hubris, and that there were financial analysts saying there's some irrational exuberance here going on. Be careful, and not people saying that's ridiculous. The, the market is strong. Greed is good. Yeah, put everything you got into it, and they were wrong. And then it's just funny they came back later and said like, well, you know, I just to clarify, I I didn't say that exactly. So there's a lot of pride and hubris and. You got to always protect yourself. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's always good advice. Yes, that is good advice. Hey, I remember
4: when they were talking on the news about the Dow hitting 10,000. And I I was young, and I didn't understand the stock market at all. But I was like, 10,000, that's a lot. That's a big number. <laughs> and then yesterday, or the day before we recorded this, uh, it hit 30,000. And it's going to keep going, I guess, because that's what it does. But there will be crashes. And Casey says one's coming in 2032. So just something to think about, especially when it comes from a guy with a track record. Now, there were other prophecies, again, that haven't come to pass, one of them being, depending on how you look at it, the discovery of Atlantis. Uh, We'll get into more detail on that at another time. He also predicted that there would be volcanic activity preceding earthquakes and tsunamis. He also predicted earth changes that would destroy nations. And then he said after that, there would be a thousand years of a golden age. He predicted that we would find ways to extend human life, which I've been reading articles about that just in the past week. He predicted a city of gold would be discovered in the Gobi Desert. Let's get out there and start digging. He additionally said that a self-fueling perpetual motion machine would be invented. And uh, some people have been working on this and apparently are still working on it to this day. Uh, But it hasn't happened yet. Nazi bell. Yeah, the Nazi bell, or yeah, or it happened, and some DARPA group swept it up and disappeared. I think when things like that come out, the military industrial complex makes them disappear, even if they are here. It's it's a lot like advancements that they deny until thirty years later when they say they're retiring it, and you're like, oh, you've had that all this time. Yeah, so there's that. Uh, and this one here's one that struck a chord with me personally for some reason. It it felt remarkably plausible to me here now in 2020 compared to how it probably felt when he first talked about it 84 years ago. This is a dream. This is not a reading. This is a dream that he had. Forrest,
3: I was wondering if if you might read this dream here. Certainly. And keep in mind, this is not a reading in his sleep-like state. This was a dream when he was fully asleep (laughs) that he recalled later. Yes. I had been born again in 2100 A.D. in Nebraska. The sea apparently covered all the western part of the country as the city where I lived was on the coast. The family name was a strange one. At an early age, as a child, I declared myself to be Edgar Cayce, who had lived 200 years before. Scientists, men with long beards, little hair, and thick glasses were called in to observe me. They decided to visit the places where I said I had been born, lived, and worked in Kentucky, Alabama, New York, Michigan, and Virginia. Taking me with them, the group of scientists visited these places in a long, cigar-shaped metal flying ship, which moved at a high speed. Water covered part of Alabama. Norfolk, Virginia had become an immense seaport. New York had been destroyed either by war or an immense earthquake and was being rebuilt. Industries were scattered over the countryside. Most of the houses were built of glass. Many records of my work as Edgar Casey were discovered and collected. The group returned to Nebraska, taking their records with them to study. Selling a little, or a lot,
2: Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business.
1: Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
3: Well, how many people are talking about rising sea levels today? Rising sea levels as compared to back then. Houses made
4: of glass, I, I which seems like he's describing mid-century moderns and contemporary houses, the And there's that old chestnut, the long cigar-shaped metal flying ship,
3: yeah. moving at high speed.
4: Maybe that was him that they saw those pilots that Commander <laughs> Fraver saw off the Nimitz that time.
3: That was Casey. He was yeah, early. One of his lifetimes. Yeah. Right. Sitting <laughs> just... in Wonder Woman's uh, transparent cube, within, enclosed within a orb yes, flying vehicle, whatever <laughs> that thing was described <laughs> as, which is pretty far out. But yeah. No, these are all interesting things for somebody to say back in the 30s that commonly now we would talk about. And a lot of people are saying, well, there you go. There's rising sea levels. There apparently is, LASIK didn't catch on in the future in 2100 AD. They're still wearing thick glasses.
4: Yeah, I don't know what that is. But beards are in. He at one point had recommended smoking regularly, didn't he?
3: Well, uh, no, let me clarify that. And that, <laughs> it's, it's, Or limiting it's your
4: smoking to, what did you say? I think you
3: told me this in the course of our research, eight cigarettes a day. I was going to address this later, but it's as good a time as any, I believe, because there is uh, some controversy, and yes, for some people... Casey said a little bit of tobacco was okay, not beneficial, but maybe not as harmful as it would be for other folks. And I want to make this point in that it is a big point of controversy in some of his readings and that, yes, nowadays we all know any form of tobacco is not good for you. You shouldn't start it. Don't even think about it. It's not a good thing. Just put that out of your head. And if you are smoking or taking tobacco in any form, you should try and quit The point here was during this reading for this specific individual, and I think we have to keep this in mind, this reading was for this particular person and the malady that he had. And what Casey would do is uh, when he was describing a treatment, he would also give you other health tips as well. Like this will take care of what you got wrong and you might want to do this too. And this is, you're, you're doing too much of this. So curb that. And it reminds me a little bit of a statement by Paracelsus, who was a Swiss physician, alchemist, astrologer during the German Renaissance. He was born towards the end of the 1400s, I think 1493, uh, some say 1494 here. But one tip that he gave out that kind of stuck with me, he said that anything you take or ingest can be too much. You, you can drink too much water or milk. If you, if you drink too much water, you'll get hyperhydrosis. Your brain will swell and you'll die a horrible death. So everything in moderation. That's his point. That was Casey's point with this gentleman. And, and in general is that uh, during this reading, which you may hear on YouTube, now this is not a sanctioned clip by them, so we're not going to include it, but you can find it. It is kind of humorous because he does say for this gentleman, as you pointed out, Scott, uh, if you limit yourself to six or eight smokes a day, now he didn't say cigarettes or pipe smoking sessions or cigars. He just said six or eight smokes for this particular person probably wouldn't be that harmful. Now we know for some people like that would not be good at all. Don't start smoking, certainly. And if you are smoking, you should probably quit. But I wanted to point out here that these readings were for specific individuals and their problems. So this is something I read a long time ago for a a health remedy reading where he said, natural tobaccos with no additives should not be that harmful for certain individuals. And again, I know today that sounds crazy and you shouldn't do that. And it would point him out to be a quack. And uh, what is he doing? That's harmful. Well, just as an anecdotal thing, one of our friends, uh, Scott knows this guy, his great-grandmother, I believe, was in her early 90s, and she was a heavy smoker. And, I mean, she would get up in the middle of the night and have a couple of smokes, and she went to her doctor, and I just remember this anecdote, and, and she said, well, doctor, you know, I'm I'm getting up there in age. Maybe I should quit smoking. <laughs> and the doctor, her doctor said, no, 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 no. If you quit smoking right now, it would be such a shock to your system that it's not going to be good for you. So, look, you, you've lasted this long. You're, you're in your early 90s just keep smoking. <laughs> you know, I know that's crazy again, but his point was that she got, had gotten used to it in a way. And there you go. You And she lived to be in her late nineties and died of natural causes. Again, the smoking wasn't great. <laughs> so it wasn't like a preservative, but for her, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I that's going to sound controversial, but I wanted to make that point about Casey and some of the things that he claimed were okay for people, not probably not great, but if you limit it, Everything in moderation, that's the point. And as he calls it, stimulus. Any stimulus to the body that's too much will be harmful.
4: And the other thing to keep in mind is that Hopkinsville was the international home of dark tobacco at the time. So well, there you go. He's yeah, promoting I mean,
3: home home products.
4: <laughs> well, observations from multiple sources indicate that Casey's details of big changes for the earth and all of that didn't necessarily come to pass the explosive ones that he was talking about in these prophecies. Although he also had a regular prediction of things happening gradually and some of that does seem to be happening. Significant major changes that were gradual, not catastrophically sudden. But those predictions and those gradual changes seem to have an air of inevitability about them in the big picture. But there's also this idea that nothing is set in stone. It's like Terminator 2, when Linda Hamilton's like carving in the table, there's no fate but what we make. And that idea comes up over and over in Casey's readings. The bottom line is this, and Kevin Williams says it really well on his own website, Quote, Casey mentioned numerous times how humanity's divine gift of free will had the power to overcome astronomical forces of nature. He also emphasized that the timeline of future events is not fixed or absolutely predetermined. Williams goes on to point out that Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, says that Jesus doesn't even know when he will return. And I'll read that here. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun but only the Father.
3: That's why I'm always a little dubious, well, always, and more than a little dubious about evangelicals that say, I know when the end days are coming and then people sell off all their stuff and uh, buy a large motor home and I don't know where they're going to go. Right. But anybody tells you they know when it's all going to end and you should give them your money. For their RV. And buy a lot of guns. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, I'd get a second opinion on that. I'd look at Matthew twenty four thirty six. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they you would think they would, but they, they don't seem to. Well, now let's turn to the skeptical viewpoint on Casey. Now, I'm sure a lot of listeners who were doubting him from the beginning are wondering when we we're going to get to this because it seems we've been very favorable. But we've been trying to take a, a middle road here and, and make our own comments throughout this, and you can certainly have your own viewpoints. But there is a definite skeptical viewpoint about Casey's abilities, what he said, Uh, his legacy, and whether it was good or not, and accurate and authentic. And it's valid, and we should look at this. So Scott, why don't you lead us off here in addressing the skeptical viewpoint?
4: Well, I'm going to start out with a completely unsubstantiated observation. And I'm going to say that it, it seems that there are as many skeptics of Casey's talents as there are believers, which is often the case with any sort of High-profile legend like this is something we've discovered uh, in the years that we've been doing this now. And because we like to cover all the angles, we would be seriously remiss if we didn't address the skeptical viewpoint. And I want to reiterate that even though our show trends towards wanting to believe, and our trade is in sharing these legends with you because we know that you guys find it interesting, we are also strong proponents of critical thinking. And while I can't speak for you, Forrest, I have to remind myself to be as unbiased as I can be when I start thinking about all the conclusions I've reached on a story. Because most of the time, by the time I'm done researching it, I have arrived at an opinion, even if I can't clarify it or nail it down a hundred percent. So at the end, or of, very well, yeah, or very well, like the sentence I just said. But at the end of a show, <laughs> I can consider my opinion informed. But it really only just barely qualifies as that. So we're pretty good at sounding like we know what we're talking about after a self-imposed immersion course on it. But you have to remember, it's just that, an immersion course. We only have a few weeks of knowledge on the topic at hand at best, usually. And the only thing we can claim up to five years of now is an overarching knowledge of the big picture and patterns in humanity that we've begun to realize that we're seeing with every story, common ground. So you could probably say we're learning more about how people react to and deal with these legends on all sides than we're learning about any given legend itself. So... Now that we've devoted the bulk of this series to all the stories about Casey with not too much criticism of his methods and the veracity of his work, let's take a look at that side of the coin. Now we can take our pick of pretty much any skeptic out there because they all have something to say about Edgar Casey. For this series, I thought we'd go with one of our favorite skeptical websites, the Skeptic's Dictionary or skeptic.com. That's S-K-E-P-D-I-C.com. A Skeptic is an impressive website maintained by Dr. Robert Todd Carroll, and Dr. Carroll's bio states that he was a full-time teacher in philosophy at Sacramento City College from 1977 until he retired in 2007, and the Skeptic website dates back 25 years to 1994, which is pretty impressive. Again, this gentleman has been looking at the opposite side of the astonishing legends coin for 20 years before we even got started. You know, he has extensive knowledge in critical thinking and has even published a book called Becoming a Critical Thinker. And more recently, The Critical Thinker's Dictionary, which I just purchased yesterday.
3: Aha, he's out to make money off skepticism. See? You shouldn't believe him. <laughs> That's yet. right. He's seeking yeah. fame and fortune. From being skeptical.
4: Uh, But Dr. Carroll has a great page on the skeptics viewpoint on Casey, and we have a link to that page in our show notes, but I want to share some of his observations here. One of the first things that he points out is that even though Casey left behind 30,000 transcripts of sessions, they, quote, provide no way of distinguishing what Casey discerned by psychic ability from information provided to him by his assistants, by letters from patients, or by simple observation. In short, the only evidence for Casey's psychic doctoring is useless for testing his psychic powers. End quote. And that's Dr. Carroll actually quoting Dale Bierstein. Bierstein is a philosopher who has taught at Malaspina College, Douglas College, Quantlin College, the University of British Columbia, and Langara College. Dale is a co-finder of the BC Skeptics and director at large of that foundation. Dr. Carroll goes on to state that beliefs in Casey's abilities are essentially based on anecdotes and testimonials. He adds that there's no proof whatsoever that cures were the product of psychic powers rather than the placebo effect. And this takes me down a whole other road. And I already said this earlier, the placebo effect, right? And this is something I wanted to drill down a little bit on. And I was looking on the internet for a good way to describe the placebo effect. I think everybody has a a superficial familiarity with it. But I found this webpage, www.health.harvard.edu. This is a Harvard website. And it talks about the power of the placebo effect. I just want to read a couple of sections here. And of course, you and I can talk about it a little bit after this. And these are excerpted. This is mostly continuous. I'm, I'm trying not to take anything too far out of context. The placebo effect is more than positive thinking believing a treatment or procedure will work. It's about creating a stronger connection between the brain and body and how they work together, says Professor Ted Kapchuk of Harvard-affiliated Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, whose research focuses on the placebo effect. Placebos won't lower your cholesterol or shrink a tumor. Instead, placebos work on symptoms modulated by the brain, like the perception of pain. Quote, placebos may make you feel better, but they will not cure you, end quote, says Kapchuk. They have been shown to be most effective for conditions like pain management, stress-related insomnia, and cancer treatment side effects like fatigue and nausea. That's again a quote. How placebos work is still not quite understood, but it involves a complex neurobiological reaction that includes everything from increases in feel-good neurotransmitters, like endorphins and dopamine, to greater activity in certain brain regions linked to moods, emotional reactions, and self-awareness. All of it can have therapeutic benefit. Quote, the placebo effect is a way for your brain to tell the body what it needs to feel better, end quote, says Kapchuk. But placebos are not all about releasing brain power. You also need the ritual of treatment. Quote, when you look at these studies that compare drugs with placebos, there is the entire environmental and ritual factor at work. You have to go to a clinic at certain times and be examined by medical professionals in white coats. You receive all kinds of exotic pills and undergo strange procedures. All this can have a profound impact on how the body perceives symptoms because you feel you are getting attention and care, end quote. And I would cite whoever wrote that entry, but it's not on the webpage there, but we do have a link to this webpage. Again, that's a Harvard webpage, and uh, Professor Kapczyk actually studies the placebo effect. So, of course, I mean, what do you think about that? I think there's something to be said for that, and I want to go further into this as we move forward here, but there's something to be said for the idea that people felt especially if they were coming up short with traditional Western medicine, that if they went and they saw this man who was something of a miracle worker, he's laying down, he's giving this advice that seems to come from another world, whether or not the advice is working or a portion of how well it works may be based on the fact that they believe
3: that they're receiving miraculous advice. What do you think about that? Well, I say if the placebo effect works, why not placebo it? At- to death. (laughs) That was probably (laughs) the wrong way to say that. I think you would placebo it to life. (laughs) Right. No, my point is that that was a key factor, what you just read there, and that the placebo effect usually has the effect of making you feel better, alleviating some symptoms, but not curing you. Right Now, I want to know more about that statement. Is that totally true? Has the placebo effect actually cured or reversed? some conditions and and maladies because I do believe personally that there is a very strong link to the mind body connection there and that the mind can be a miraculous mysterious thing that can do all sorts of things especially for one's own condition I know that you can make yourself sick and in failing health if you're harboring the wrong thoughts that also is a self-fulfilling prophecy type of condition where yeah you can you can definitely make yourself sick you can make yourself better so the problem with the casey treatments i think and that would be also with the medical community is that yeah it's a very anecdotal they as we did mention in part 2 they tried to do that a little bit when he was giving public readings and following up with people and compiling a compendium of these cases but the medical community would say and and perhaps rightly so that it's it's anecdotal you have to be in strict laboratory conditions with thousands of participants tracked over decades before can really be taken seriously by the scientific community. And that's the way they operate. Those are their standards, and they seem to be uh, pretty decent standards. So in the case of Casey, it's hard to tell whether these people initially felt better, and then the malady returned. But you can look at Casey's own life and his throat condition. He did seem to be able to cure himself for a while until things like stress and his own self-doubts i believe brought back that losing of his voice problem which is theoretically psychosomatic in the first place but you know that's they, what the voice told him that this hey y- this is psychosomatic to a degree you are bringing this on yourself and until you can fix that but you still require a
4: physical cure or an activity it's like stress cardiomyopathy which is the broken heart syndrome which right. is, is a real thing but they can't figure out really how it works where Maybe a spouse passes away and the other one passes closely after. It's it is dying of a broken heart. That
3: is also the case with Casey. Here. Yeah, that's His right. His wife Gertrude passed three away months later. three months later. Was she also feeling like, well, I'm I'm done too. My duties here on earth with my husband were were kind of done. I miss him, and uh, I'm going to go join him. Whatever the the case, that's more a personal thing. Maybe the family knows, but you can see it recently with uh, Debbie Reynolds. And Carrie Fisher, where her brother, Carrie Fisher's brother, said that her mom wasn't that sad. She just missed Carrie and she wanted to be with her. Yeah. And very soon after, she passed away. Is that what's taking place there?
4: Well, Dr. Carroll goes on to point out on his website that, quote, it is true, however, that many people consider themselves cured by Casey, and that's enough evidence for true believers. It works. The fact that thousands don't consider themselves cured or can't rationalize an erroneous diagnosis won't deter the true believer. Gardner, who I'll explain who that is here in a little bit, notes that Dr. J.B. Rhine, famous for his ESP experiments at Duke University, was not impressed with Casey. Ryan felt that a psychic reading done for his daughter didn't fit the facts. Now, defenders of Casey claim that if a patient has any doubts about Casey, the diagnosis won't be a good one. Yet what reasonable person wouldn't have doubts about such a man, no matter how kind or sincere he was? And Casey's defenders provide some classic ad hoc hypotheses to explain away their hero's failures. For example, Casey and a famous dowser named Henry Gross set out together to discover buried treasure along the seashore. And found nothing. Their defenders suggested that their psychic powers were accurate because either there was once a buried treasure where they looked, but it had been dug up earlier, or there would be a treasure buried there sometime in the future. And Dr. Carroll goes on to say parenthetically one wonders why their psychic powers didn't discern this. We're going to explain this away, and I'm going to say right now that's something that I know I'm personally guilty of on our own show. Not because I'm trying to convince people that something that's hard to wrap your head around is true when it looks like it isn't, but more because it is, frankly, just how my mind works. I do wonder, because of the things that we've seen and studied, I do wonder sometimes if something doesn't look true or seems false on the surface, how can you know (laughs) that I'm literally doing exactly what Carol's talking about here. What's that? How it? Well, maybe it happened before and it's gone. Maybe there was a treasure and somebody already dug it up, or it's going to happen in the future. <laughs> oh. I do this. I know that I do this, and I'm admitting to it. So I. Yeah. But conversely, I still have a little bit of faith in that idea that just because a mistake is made, it doesn't categorically deny what's happening. That's. You know, and I don't know
3: how to, there's no way to scientifically defend that position. And right. I, get th- I get that. Well, as we described in his life narrative, that whenever he did try to do something for financial gain, it didn't seem to work. So it didn't work on two occasions or in two areas here where if you weren't really buying into it, and maybe that is that mind-body-link connection that must be established, if you didn't really buy into this stuff, it's not going to work for you. You can go through the motions and, and maybe you get some relief, but you're not going to be receiving the total benefit of it. And throughout his life story, that happened all the time, especially in, in the mid to later years, where he agreed to try and find buried treasure or provide, he was trying to raise money for the hospital. So he got into partnership with those oil men from Texas, and that didn't work. So what can you surmise from that? And that, well, if you're trying to use it for something of just making money, it doesn't work. Yeah, that's what he said he found
4: himself. And yeah, finding the treasure may have been something that wouldn't work out because it is about personal gain.
3: Yeah, it doesn't need to be found. I mean, finding buried treasure really just makes you rich, unless it's something of knowledge. And we'll talk about this when we discuss Atlantis, and that there is a buried storehouse of knowledge, supposedly. Now, discovering that is beneficial to humanity, not just making a few folks rich. So there are stipulations apparently to what this knowledge and, and ability can be used for. And speaking of Atlantis, I just want to mention briefly here that something uh, skeptic Robert Todd Carroll goes over in the Skeptic's Dictionary saying that Casey is one of the main people responsible for some of the sillier notions about Atlantis. And yeah, when we talk about it, as we're going to, you could say that's really silly and far out and crazy, wacky stuff. It's 50 sci-fi it's baloney. How could you even consider that? Well, what does Robert Todd Carroll know about Atlantis? It's a fictional place, isn't it? That's what a lot of people believe. It didn't exist at all. It was just mentioned by some ancient Greek historians, possibly in an oral narrative. There's no proof of Atlantis existing at all. So that's also kind of a silly statement, I think, about Atlantis and that we're also looking at it as much as Mr. Carroll is, is that, well, Atlantis would be like the ancient Greeks, right? They're all mucking about wearing togas and sandals and and uh, espousing on this and that, and they're not very advanced. Well, how would he know? Was he there? And I'm making a joke, of course, but yeah, yeah. it's like, <laughs> what's sillier here? You're talking about what the reality is of a fictional place that might be or may not have existed, or what you think it should have been like. And so two of the things that Carol mentioned about being kind of wacky and silly was Casey's mention of Atlantis using solar power in combination with crystals that was used to power the whole island I believe it was still an island there and that in 1958 Casey apparently predicted that the United States would discover a death ray that had been used on Atlantis and so those are just two examples that Carroll believes are are pretty silly well uh, the death ray that was being kicked around in the 1920s and 30s by such people as Edwin R. Scott and other notables, Marconi, and of course, Nikola Tesla. And he, he said it wasn't a ray. It was, a, it was more of a beam. So get that straight. But that's not a new idea. That certainly could have been uh, picked up by Casey at some point. But there were serious people that were working on it. And you wouldn't know what the military has acquired or discovered because they're not going to let you know. So my point here is that some of the things that he came up with nowadays wouldn't maybe seem all that crazy because there are more fantastical things that science is currently working on that we're just now beginning to hear about.
4: Well, Dr. Carroll goes on to state that folks that believe in Casey's reading cite the fact that he couldn't have known all the things he did medically and otherwise without the knowledge coming from an outside source. But Casey worked in bookstores and loved to read, especially occult and osteopathic works. He further cites Martin Gardner, who we mentioned a minute ago, who famously wrote a book entitled Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science. This came out in 1952. This book is a touchstone for the modern skeptic movement. Fads and Fallacies in the Name of Science was originally published in 52 as In the Name of Science, an entertaining survey of the high priests and cultists of science past and present. It was Martin Gardner's second work, this is from Wikipedia, a survey of what it described as pseudosciences and cult beliefs. It became a founding document in the nascent scientific skepticism movement. Michael Shermer said of it, quote, modern skepticism has developed into a science-based movement beginning with Martin Gardner's 1952 classic. So that's, again, that's off the Wikipedia page there. Dr. Carroll points out that Gardner refers to one of Casey's readings regarding Gertrude's tuberculosis, Gertrude being Casey's wife. Uh, This is from a 1957 printing of Gardner's book on page 217. Quote, from the head, pains along through the body from the second, fifth, and sixth dorsals and from the first and second lumbar. Tie-ups here, floating lesions or lateral lesions in the muscular and nerve fibers, which supply the lower end of the lung and the diaphragm in conjunction with the sympathetic nerve of the solar plexus coming in conjunction with the solar plexus at the end of the stomach. So there's portions of that reading that qualify as incorrect diagnoses. That's what Carol is saying. They are technically diagnostic misses. So some of the information is right, much of it is wrong, and this is a brief overview of Carol's position and I think it well represents the skeptical position on Casey in general. So I mean this and now we should talk about this first. I mean what do you think? Well,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't have enough uh, medical knowledge to even should be commenting on this, but, and as from a layperson's point though, yeah, it's, I don't know what he's talking about, of course. Yeah. That's what I get from a lot of the readings is that you'll you'll read them. And, and it's not clear, as I said uh, at the beginning of our series here, in that they seem vague. You're not really sure exactly what he's talking about. And that's a criticism in that if you're going to make a claim, a prediction, a, a remedy, a medical diagnosis, a prophecy, people want you to be, Explicitly clear, and they want you to be a hundred percent right all the time, because most people don't have much use for somebody who's right half the time, even though that might be amazing. 50% of the time you might get some pretty far out prophecies correct. That's pretty incredible. But I think the skeptical side would want a hundred percent correct. I, I don't know how much is how much is good enough? 90% correct all the time, 80%, how much would impress them? I believe Hugh Lynn Casey, when they did a study, they claimed that their father's readings were uh, above 80% accurate, I believe. So if you look specifically at the case of Gertrude's tuberculosis, maybe most of the diagnosis was incorrect. On the other hand, she seems to have been healed. Now, we don't know, is that the placebo effect? Not just making her feel better, but actually providing a cure. Was it that powerful that she believed her husband's abilities? And as we know from the narrative, she started off being very dubious about these readings. They they both were. So did she come around and it actually had some effect? Did she just get better on her own? Was that even possible? We don't have enough details nowadays to be able to look at this and say, definitely, it was due to Casey's readings. And even though they were 60% off the mark, the 40% there was enough to cure her and whatever they did as a restorative treatment actually worked. So it's all too vague, is my point, to actually nail this down. But on the other hand, I would say it's very hard to argue with success, although a lot of people will. <laughs> uh, well put. Well, I think whatever you believe about Edgar Casey, he gave a lot of people hope during his lifetime, and his legacy continues to do so with the foundation. And as I always say, look at the overall message. Was it something where uh, it seems to be negative? Where like sell off all your earthly possessions, give the money to me. We're gonna buy a bunch of guns and get a compound.
4: Or I get a big, big house and 23 Rolls Royces.
3: Yes. That's that <laughs> the classic. Give all your money to God. Here's my address. Yeah. And uh, with the person justifying it saying, well, God wants me to have this. Mm-hmm. And that's why you should do it. And there's a lot of people that will uh, give into that. If you look at Casey's message to the world, it's all positive. Of course, there might be some criticisms. Uh, someone we know indirectly, Karen Stoles now, of the Monster Talk podcast with our friend Blake Smith, who they're both hosts of that show. Uh, go check that out. It's a great if you show, yeah. Want to, yeah, it's a great show and, and and blog for the skeptical, rational side of a lot of these arguments and things that we cover. And one thing Karen Stoltz now would say is that his treatments were based basically on hearsay, folk remedies, anecdotal kind of things that he may have picked up, and they were maybe at best useless. At the worst, they could be dangerous, and again, tobacco use maybe pointed to that as like, well, whoa, hold on, we shouldn't be doing that at all. That's way off the mark. And another criticism that a lot of skeptics would bring up is that, yeah, he, maybe Gertrude was cured, but he couldn't cure his own cousin, and he couldn't cure his own baby son, and he passed away. But if you remember from what we said earlier, it's believed from Casey's supporters and probably Casey himself that the diagnosis and treatment for his own baby son was not given due consideration. And that possibly led to the demise of their son. So that's an argument that supporters would say, well, there you go. He didn't follow his own advice. And that's something the critics would say, well, he couldn't save his own son. So, and then another thing that critics point out is that he provided diagnoses for people that had already passed away. And I don't know if that was, those are thrown at him to try and trip him up or prove that he was a fraud. But I believe it's hard to say if this is a voice coming from somewhere else, some other intelligence that is not from the earthly plane, what they're actually looking at. Does a soul live on? And therefore, it's really hard to pin down. But aside from all that, I do believe there are things that Casey brought up in his lifetime at, that exist in his legacy that introduced the Western world, at least, the United States specifically, that are more spiritual things that, that are not only just fun to talk about, but might open up your thinking a little bit. So, Scott, I was going to ask you, what do you think about some of these concepts here, like uh, auras and and soulmates and using dream interpretation, and developing your psychic intuition? Is it all hogwash? Um, I You know, I
4: don't know. I guess I, I don't think there's a lot of danger in exploring it, really. And I think in a lot of cases, it can have a positive side to it. I've always been fascinated with auras, I don't really understand them. I, but I think, again, going back to the psychic that saw me in, at John Cryer's house, I <laughs> think she said that I <laughs> had an, I said something about my aura in that session. I believe in soulmates. I a thousand percent believe in that. I believe that that is a thing. And I also am fond of dream interpretation or trying to figure out what dreams mean beyond just a scrambled thing happening in your brain when you're sleeping. I, I do feel like there's some significance to them and that there's a relationship. Between the conscious and the subconscious, and I believe in the possibility of a global subconscious, I think. And that's based on all the things that we've uncovered over the past several years. And as far as developing psychic ability, I guess uh, I feel like that's something that you want everybody maybe wants to do or would like to be able to do. But my jury is still out on whether or not that's nature or nurture, the psychic ability thing. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure.
3: Developing it, does it exist at all? Do you believe that it's a real thing?
4: Yes, I do believe it's a real thing. I believe that we have met people that I believe are psychic and I believe we've studied cases of people that clearly were pulling information that they shouldn't have been able to acquire without yeah. contact or knowledge of things that then turned out to be true. Yes, I absolutely believe that there is something to psychic abilities. Whether or not we all have them and can develop them, I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. So Well,
3: that's what it said, is that we all have that a little bit of ability, that it has to be fine-tuned, though, and that it's like singing. Some people have natural ability. Some have to be trained. Some people will always be tone-deaf. That's me. When it comes to singing, that's me. Yeah. You can utter a note. It just might be an unpleasant one. Well, anyway, that's all very interesting. I was more curious to hear what your thoughts on it, because uh, I'm sure that has changed since uh, five, six years ago when we started talking about this stuff. I asked you about that kind of stuff back then. And I think you've, uh, y- your needles moved a little bit. The needle has moved. That's what you always say. My, has my <laughs> needle moved? Yes. Uh, no, you know what, the, where you got that is somebody, uh, asked you that about me a few years ago, if your needle had moved and then they asked you if my needle had moved and you said, no, it's, yeah, just, it's still, <laughs> it's just stuck in place, rusted, yeah. uh, yeah. solid there. Well, it does. uh, I will say, though, that some things do kind of expand your knowledge about uh, different things and you develop a philosophical approach to a lot of these things that we look at. It all boils down to philosophy. And regarding Casey and uh, his what you believe about him, I think it comes down to two areas. One is, of course, the major thing is the medical arena and his treatments and cures. And does that work? And is it harmful? And like the psychic things that you just talked about, it's all very personal. I remember when you first did that show and you said that you had gone to a psychic. I remember we got a letter saying that guy said, as soon as Scott mentioned that, like, I'm out. Right. Like, you guys are, that's just dumb. You went to a psychic? I don't want to hear about that. That doesn't work. Well, I mean, she was at a party. It was free. (laughs) It's a party trip. Not like I I got in the car and... Went somewhere and handed over 30 bucks, you know? Well, my point, it's all a very personal experience, and that's what I believe about supernatural stuff. You can believe or don't. Until you have an experience, you won't really know, and then you might accept it, and you might deny it, and you might not know what to think about it. But it's, again, a very personal thing. Same thing with the readings for these health treatments, and that it's very specifically tuned to some people, but as we said before, some cures seem to work in a more general sense, and that's why they offer them to the public and that it might help you, but always be cautious. So my basic thing about medicine is that, yeah, I always check with your doctor first. That's what we're always going to say. That's what I believe. Check with your doctor first. If you wanna try some herbal remedy, something homeopathic, check with them first to make sure that for you, it's not going to be harmful, And on the flip side of that, I've been prescribed medications that I know had zero effect on me. One of them is a medication that's prescribed for a cough. It had zero effect on me. Did it harm me? Well, not that I can tell. If you kept taking it, maybe it would. But as far as my attitude about natural remedies versus pharmaceuticals is that, yes, always check with your doctor first. Make sure that it's not going to harm you. And then you have to determine for yourself, does it work? Maybe it's placebo. Maybe not. Maybe you're just wasting your money. But in the argument for that, I think I'd rather take something that was considered more natural than something that has to be advertised on TV Is may cause nausea, vomiting, severe headaches, rashes, diarrhea, uncontrollable movements, mood swings, and thoughts of suicide. My favorite is... Uh, that last one always catches me. Yeah, yeah, that one and fecal urgency. That's a problem. I don't want <laughs> yeah. fecal urgency. If you're taking anything <laughs> that might have that, you have to decide for yourself, you know, is the medication worth it? Because... I know from some relatives who have had to take a lot of medication that the side effects really start to affect that quality of life issue and that, okay, maybe it's helping this, but I feel so awful and I have to take eight other medications, which give me a whole round of other things that are happening to me. I'm not sure it's worth it. And so always get a second opinion. That's a big thing. So my point here is that Western medicine is also not infallible. You have to decide for yourself. Now, when it comes to the prophecy side of this, Who knows how it all works on the other side? I'm thinking of mothman prophecies, right, Scott? Where uh, we were discussing why is it so hard for these super intelligent entities to make accurate predictions about when exactly something is going to happen? Can't they tell us? Maybe it doesn't work like that. Maybe time is hard to gauge on the other side. So they can tell us, well, if you keep going like you will, as Casey would say, then this is probably going to happen. Now you can change that if you change your behavior become decent folks, not fight with each other. Or some things might be inevitable, but I know from a prophecy standpoint, people are not satisfied with 80%. (laughs) They want 100% accuracy. They want to know right to the minute when something is going to happen. And like under scientific conditions, they want to be able to put you in a lab under scientific conditions and have you be 100% accurate. I think then mainstream science would pay attention to this stuff. And even then, if you were 100% accurate, people are going to deny it. So, But it made me think about, what is it about time? As you said something earlier, Scott, uh, earlier in the show, there was a quote that a lot of people think comes from Albert Einstein, and that is, the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once. <laughs> and so I looked that up in a great site, it's called Quote Investigator, and they say that there is no substantive evidence that Einstein wrote or spoke that statement but it might come from a short story titled The Girl in the Golden Atom by Ray Cummings. That came out in 1919. So after the turn of the century, a lot of these big ideas were being bandied about. And Casey was right there active during that time. Maybe he was picking that up by osmosis as well. I love big ideas. Hey, what's the big idea? What's well, the we... bi- <laughs> There's a lot of big ideas <laughs> happening then. And that's when Einstein was operating as well. And he was introducing things that people didn't believe until they were mathematically proved. And we, they were just uncertain, but they were new ideas. So, thinking about how time works and maybe why prophecy doesn't work, this is a huge stretch here, but just again, something philosophical I was thinking about. Maybe, like the Buddhist principle, everything is happening at once, there is no past. There is no future. There is only now, just this moment. And it is something that I know is impossible for most of us to wrap our heads around because we're not coming at it with any kind of experiential reference point. We don't even know how to think about that or what it would feel like. Maybe ghost experience on the other side where they don't feel the passage of time, it's all just one long now. But if it is all bunched up together and it is all happening now then it does depend on our free will perhaps and there are an infinite number of Scott Philbricks out there making an infinite number of choices and everything has happened with you mind blown <laughs> everything that was going to happen that could possibly happen has happened and it happened at one point and it's still you're in that moment where it's all just happening so it's a little too loose, is what I'm saying, for prophecy. It's not going to be 100%. And sometimes it is. And that's when it freaks people out. You're talking about psychics earlier. I have had people who had, I believe, psychic ability tell me things that a guy I had no, I, I didn't even know them very well. And in some cases, not at all. And they told me a few things and they were spot on. And that grabs your attention. When it happens to you, it will make you think, how did this person possibly know that? I gave them, they don't know me. They didn't look this up on the internet. A lot of this happened pre-internet when I was younger. And it was like, whoa, it just, you don't know where it comes from, but it's coming from somewhere. So in the case of prophecy, the things that were off the mark for Casey, it's like, well, maybe they're still going to happen. Maybe they happen in another timeline. We don't know. But I think that before people really start to look to him, yeah, they're going to want some things to hit 100%. So in summation about Casey here, in my viewpoint is that if you look at the two areas here of medical diagnoses and predictions of things to come. This thought might work for all those arenas and that if his remedies didn't work as much as people claim they did, he wouldn't have been as sought after then or as studied to this day. I think he would have been more of a footnote in quack history and quackery. So maybe there is something to these cures coming from some other place, this other side. Is pseudoscience a fair term? Probably for some of this kind of stuff, maybe not for all of it. Because as we've often examined on this show, I believe there are forces that operate outside the boundaries of known science, which appear to cause a noticeable effect. And Casey was always open to having licensed medical practitioners become involved in his process rather than hide from it. And when it comes to Edgar Casey and prophecy, I think like I believe about a lot of the medical readings, they're a little bit vague for me personally. I don't exactly know what he's talking about. You can understand his cures and how to make them. He was pretty clear about that. But as far as what was going on inside your body, like, I don't know, that might be a personal thing between you and your doctor. When it comes to the readings on prophecy and predictions he made, I think Yes, some of it is pretty vague. I have a hard time reading it and getting my head wrapped around it, trying to figure out exactly what he was talking about. But if you look at history and what actually did happen, some things line up enough for me anyway, that I believe he was in the ballpark. And the things that have not yet come to pass where people say, well, he was way off the mark on this, I think we're just going to have to wait and see. So what do you think, Scott? Well, I guess my final conclusion here
4: is I had to step back and look at this story overall. And I want to reiterate that we're going to talk about KC one more time next week, uh, specifically about Atlantis. But before we get to that, I wanted to give a big picture view of where I was at after these two episodes that we've already done. And, you know, since my Sally House experience, there's been a small but persistent flow of comments on social media and the odd email accusing me of having become too open-minded, Oh, for lack of a better descriptor. You should be closed-minded. How yeah, dare you? Yeah, I know, right? Well, it, it's true. My belief system has shifted a bit since we started the show. It, it wasn't just the Sally House experience that did that, though, and I want people to understand that. The Sally experience was a prominent component of a shift in my thinking, but that change has really come from the sum total of all the things we've covered and what we've learned along the way. So there's that. However, the pre-Sally House Scott still lives within me, and I still have a healthy amount of skepticism with regard to the claims associated with a lot of stories. The change in my thinking relates more to concluding that it's okay if there are things we don't understand, and also that we don't need to always draw a line between point A and point B with a story like this. You can put all the labels you want on the school of thought you use to approach a story like this. You can say Casey wasn't psychic at all there is no Akashic Record, and that it's all a bunch of hooey, as one contemporaneous skeptic described it. But that doesn't change the fact that there are people that believed in Casey and also believed that they were healed by his advice. Now, even if all those cases can be described as anecdotal and unprovable, it's pretty clear there were people who sought his help out and felt that what he did for them saved them. Was it a placebo effect? Maybe. Maybe. But if it was, that's just as miraculous as what he claimed to do. I mean, you can label Casey a fraud and say it was all the placebo effect. Great. What have you accomplished with that? Nothing. You've simply shifted your need for cognitive closure from one unknown to another that is much more scientifically acceptable. It's nomenclature. We still don't know how this works, but we've classified it. Down with pseudoscience. It's the placebo effect. Well, they don't understand the placebo effect either. So whether or not what Casey was doing was real is hard to know, I suppose. I don't think we get to know the real answer to most of the stories we cover. And coming back to my shift in thinking since we started, I'm fine with that. My need to prove this unexplainable thing is happening and this is exactly how has passed. But my desire to know all the details of what occurred is as strong as it ever was. The one thing I'm absolutely certain of is that Casey was a kind and generous man who did not set out in search of fame or fortune and who had no intention of defrauding anyone. I believe that he believed that what he was doing was helping people. And I also believe that this story has a lot of packaging on it. I think it's easy to wrap it up in his faith, and maybe that really was at the root of it, but there's a part of me that believes things like this can happen for what even the diehard skeptics would have to eventually admit was a scientific reason. It it just might be one that we don't understand yet but I think the skeptical approach to things we don't understand is aggressively dismissive, and that doesn't do anyone any good either. The conversation ends here because this is the limit of our understanding. Still, I'm moving the goal line. I recognize that. I was personally struck by Thomas Segrew's portrayal in his book, There is a River, of Casey as believing that all medicines and sciences should be applied to issues that people might be having. Casey believed in Western medicine and osteopathy, as well as holistic medicine, and that they could be used concurrently, independently, or in whatever way possible. And he suggested that maybe it would all work better if rather than all parties being dismissive of each other, they worked together. Another passage that really stood out to me in Segru's book was this one, and this is an exchange between Edgar and his son Hugh Lynn, and I'll leave you with it tonight. Every time a thought goes through your head, it changes your whole being. Some thoughts change you only a little. Some thoughts change you a great deal, but all of them change you. Your conscious mind compares every new experience and every new thought with all the experiences and thoughts of a related nature which you've had in this life. Your subconscious mind, the soul mind, compares every new experience and thought with every related experience and thought you've had in all your lives. And beyond that, the superconscious mind, the awareness of your spirit, compares every new experience and thought with truth, the law itself. But what you are going to experience and think is affected by what you have already experienced and thought. For instance, you experience something, your conscious mind makes its comparison and judgment, your subconscious mind makes its comparison and judgment, and your superconscious mind makes its comparison and judgment. As a result of these comparisons and judgments, you, as a whole, adopt an attitude, an opinion, or a feeling about the experience. It may take a little time. For a few days, the judgment of your conscious mind will be uppermost. Then, after what you call reflection, a more reasonable long-range opinion is adopted. And finally, after a period of understanding, a wise, detached, universal opinion prevails. But that's not the end, either. All your future experiences and thoughts which are related to this experience Influence your attitude toward it, your opinion. So while your past is continually influencing you, you are continually influencing your past. Your past, your present, and your future all change from day to day, from minute to minute, from thought to thought. That's going to wrap up part two of our three-part series on Edgar Casey. We'll be back next week with part three, focusing on his readings about the lost city of Atlantis. A reminder that permission has been granted by the Edgar Casey Foundation to share the portions of his readings that we quoted in tonight's show. The readings are the property of the foundation and copyrighted in 1971,
3: as well as from 1993 to 2007. All rights reserved. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Boland.
1: Hi, I'm Steve, and I give permission to Astonishing legends to use my voice however they see fit, galaxy-wide, in perpetuity.
4: Tonight's show was edited by Chris Potter
1: at
3: RumbleJar.com and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.